Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, uh, first of all, welcome. Second of all, be sure to check out all of the content we put out on the internet. Uh, best place to get access to everything we do is by following me on Twitter, which is at Focus Compound. All of the information is down below. If the current market volatility has got you in the blues and you're looking uh, to outsource part of that capital or you want to learn more about our money management services, we do have a hedge fund and we do have a managed accounts arm. Uh, qualifications are a little bit different for each vehicle, uh, but to start that conversation, reach out to me, Andrew at FocusCompounding.com. Uh, so, Jeff, this is the first podcast we've recorded in, I don't know, what, like maybe a little bit over a month? Yeah, uh, in a while, yeah. Welcome back. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we recently got back from Omaha. Yes. And this is our first podcast since returning. Mm -hmm. We're going to switch up our style, or we're just going to try out we're a new style. Try. We'll see. Yeah, we'll yeah. try it out. Um, really, I think, you know, if we do one podcast a week, but maybe just a little bit more long... Mm -hmm. where we hit on everything, um, uh, maybe people will enjoy that. I mean, the numbers say that long form is the best form for advertisers and stuff like that for rates. So, you know, we're official now, so maybe we'll try doing what everybody else does and just uh, talk a little bit longer uh, for our podcast instead of, you know, 30 or 40 minutes. We'll just do one that could go on for, I don't know, I mean, we just did a private podcast for fun that was three hours and 41 minutes. I don't know if I want to use that as the standard every single time for our podcast, but really we just hit on everything once a week and still talk right. about some sort of topic today. Our topic's actually going to be Berkshire and, uh, you know, just kind of see where it goes. Yeah, maybe we'll have more of a section breakdown, yeah. you know, in terms of topics. We might have some eventually as we do this more information about like where people can listen to what parts and have an idea of what's in an episode. So it won't just be like episode number or whatever, you know. God, so you're like telling me to do that on YouTube then, break it down where uh, they can tell the sections. And oh, stuff like on that. YouTube, you can really break it down. Yeah, but I just mean like in terms of like a um, show notes or whatever, just that they, you know, so that we don't get questions of like, where is the one where you discuss this? Uh, during COVID, we did something that people were like, oh, where is that? And it was like, oh, it's just randomly in the middle. Because if you remember during COVID when we were doing it daily, you remember that? Yeah. So we just do like some, we transition from one topic to a totally different topic. And sometimes people will be interested in one. So they're like, where's this one that has something about net nets or something? And it's like just randomly in uh, one of the COVID podcasts. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on making it more official where maybe sometimes we'll we'll have our full show, right? but we'll insert like a conversation with another investor, maybe an author of a book yeah, we're we'll reading see. and stuff like that, or should we just keep it Andrew and Jeff? I have mixed feelings on that. Um, what are your mixed I like feelings? the idea of it. I listen to some other podcasts where they do it, um, but it depends on the person. Uh, we've tried some where we like bring the same person back or something. And if you have the right chemistry with someone, it works. Yeah. Um, but just something that's like not organic adding to it. No, I mean, I don't know if you listen to some podcasts, I listen to some podcasts where I don't listen to the ones where they bring on other people. Yeah. Where then there's other shows where that's all that they do. Right. Uh -huh. But actually it's the one where it's just the host that I'll listen to that one. And then the other one I'll be like, no, even though it's like some big guests that they got and it probably some of their biggest numbers, it's actually not their usual 
interplay, you know? Maybe we're doing this wrong. Maybe we should have like this setup be where it's, you know, a coffee table and a couple couches or whatever. Because you've seen these long form ones where it's like they're just sitting on the couch, you know, cross-legged, hanging out, drinking coffee, smoking a cigar and talking about whatever they want to talk about. Uh, I haven't seen Joe Rogan, so that's probably... <laughs> are you describing Joe Rogan? Because I yeah. can't imagine there are a lot of podcasts like that. Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, actually there's a lot of comedians that okay. have found their voice. So it, sort of in the oh. era of cancel culture right, and stuff like podcasting, that. podcasting, yeah. They just go through yeah. Patreon and they're like, honestly, okay. that makes why sense. would I be going on stage to do comedian or, you know, be a comedian or whatever, where I could just have my own brand, have my own following, run a Patreon connect directly with my fans that choose me because they like my content mm -hmm. and not have to worry about having some things they say be completely public, even though it is public, but they're not, you're not going to get canceled by that. But there's a lot of comedians that have uh podcasts and that's kind of how they do it. Yeah. So people can uh, tell us what they think about what they'd like to see different or what they'd like to hear. That's different from what we do. Um, that would be helpful. Yeah, something I run into and I think about a lot is we can only do so many videos on how to read a cash flow statement, how to read a balance sheet. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what is this next evolution of the pod? What does that look like? We still want to do how to videos. We're always bringing in new viewers. So it's always good to do that and sort of supplement that in. But what do we want the podcast to be? I think it's great to talk about news stuff because a lot of the stuff that we talk about is on mm -hmm. other investors' minds as well. So it's good to do timely. I know you prefer to do more timeless stuff. I think it's good to have a mix of the True. two. Um, Definitely for, for ratings and stuff. It absolutely is, yeah, for audience. Uh -huh. um, yeah, but like when we were at Omaha, we got I got some questions from people that I had not answered before on the podcast or something like that, or they hadn't been able to get answered before. Even ones that were, um, you'd say timeless or whatever, ones that are, how do you do this? How do you do that? Or I've heard you say this, but what does that mean exactly? Uh, how you calculate it or whatever. So I, I think there can be a mix of different things that we can try Yeah. Um, to, to do both sorts of things. Yeah. People do like some uh, news type things, but I don't know. I feel like the two kinds of podcasts other than ours and investing things are either a round table type discussion of the latest news, right? That sort of thing, you know, sort of like the CNBC Brady Bunch uh, breakdown yeah. thing there, but in podcast form kind of thing, whether it's two people or it's eight people, um, you know, let's go through the, you know, what happened with this stock, what happened with that stock, you know, um, or the in-depth interview. I mean, kind of don't, I don't Quite like the interview. I don't like the interview style. Okay. It's very saturated. Right. That's what I've always liked the way that we do the podcast is because I feel like we talk about more in-depth analysis, mm -hmm. more so than a lot of other podcasts do. But it serves a great purpose to the market, and I'm not hating on that Yeah, I just hope genre. we can walk people through things more, I guess. Okay. That's the thing that I like more, whether it's timeless things or something that is... Uh, specific to something happening now to to walk through like um and actually show them what we're talking about so more quick fs type stuff yeah quick fs talk people through it why we would think the way that we do um how we would try to look at a problem so that they can bring that to how they think about it 
Yeah. You know, Buffett did that uh, rabbit duck thing. You know, the, the, um, the illusion. illusion. Yeah. Something like that. That I hope that we give people a different way to look at something or tackle a problem or, you know, what I like is if people go, oh, I never thought to analyze a bank like that until I listened to your podcast and now I try that way too. Or analyze, you know, uh, whatever uh, particular thing it might be, that they can apply it themselves to something that we didn't even look at. Yeah. You know, like tools that people can use. That that would be the thing I would care most about is that would be practical for them. Have you ever thought about our version of what Buffett did when he was teaching a class at, was it a, a college or yeah. was it just for anybody? Mm-hmm. He was teaching an investing and securities class. Have you ever thought about the podcast as kind of our version yes. of that, but just on a very, yep. we get the mm-hmm. Yeah, because people have asked internet. that about a book, right? People have tried to get me to do a book. People have tried to get me to do an uh, online class. People have tried to get me to do things in person. Um, this is kind of it. Yeah. I mean, Would you I'm not saying that book? I wouldn't ever do any of those things, but I'm saying that th- this is, if you want to know what a course is, it's this. Now, the problem is this is sort of like, you got to dig in and do this yourself. There's things that don't apply to you at all. You skip those, you listen to other ones, or you just got to listen through it and find the things that work for you. But that's the idea. I mean, I think... When I talked to you early on about the podcast and what I wanted it to be, I mentioned the podcast writing excuses, right? So it's a they're like novelists and stuff that started that podcast. But the idea of that one that was important to me, so they talk about a topic for like 20 minutes, a particular topic in, in writing fiction. But what was important to me is they were actually um, commercial, professional writers trying to make a living writing as opposed to having CFAs on there, you know, having um, people who, uh, I, I mean, um, yeah, uh, having people who, uh, MFAs, having people who are um, just professors of writing or uh, critiquing things or whatever. Um, it just it was practical. So right? learning in public, doing in public. The idea of a, like a college course, but instead of getting caught up in theory and things, being purely practical. Sure. Yeah. And giving you a bit of the tips of what people might actually do, what mistakes they made, what whatever, things that way. And also repeating the same people instead of an interview, right? In an interview, you can only go so deep unless you repeat that. That person comes back a few times, right? And Charlie Rose, how many times they interview Buffett? So maybe they can hit new territory that way. But each time you kind of only get so far. And then you don't get to learn about what kinds of actual um, tricks and techniques and things that they each use and, and how they evolved over time. So hopefully we can do that, you know? So even though we don't do a, uh, a ton about net nets or whatever, if you have questions about net nets, we can give you some ways of looking at it about thinking about it because I've bought net nets before. I've talked to other people about net nets. I've written articles about it. I would buy net nets again. Yeah. I've seen like what things worked for people. In terms of like I tried, you know, part of the podcast thing is over time I've learned like what works better as a way of communicating certain things and what doesn't. Because I've learned that some things that work in practice, right, I do them, they work in practice or whatever, actually is very hard to translate over to someone to talk to them about it and then it works for them and they repeat it, you know, like teach someone to fish and then they're making profit off of it consistently. Other things you'd be surprised catch really quickly with people and it works. Some don't. And like NetNets is a good example of that where I actually have done well with it when I've employed and stuff, but had a really hard time in that the actual application by people of it who've read articles I wrote or whatever has not worked out so well. And then why is that? And what kinds of mistakes do I feel like 
happen regularly mm-hmm. with that, you know? Just on that note, why is that? Buy the wrong kind of net nets. Don't hold them for the right period of time. Um, some other things like that. So, I mean, for, for me, I'd say the big net net things are one difficult. They aren't, for whatever reason, people don't seem to be as good just avoiding frauds as I would like them to be. No matter what, we talk a lot about like signs for detecting fraud, gut reactions to management things, common sense things, whatever. People aren't as good as just like avoiding things that could be frauds. It's not even about having to say it is a fraud, but saying this one clearly is not a fraud. Let me focus in on those. The difference between somewhat high risk and like normal or low risk, right? But is that a skill thing that you've just seen the film so many times where it's much easier for you to pick up on it i wish i could say that but it's not when i started out investing i wasn't I investing in frauds a, i think you're a unique breed uh, no i you think buffett was investing in frauds no you think munger was investing in frauds no well, so it means so there's unique some person there's some personality thing you know i don't know exactly what it is but there is some sort of and part of it might be the focus on the upside which is the other part with with net nets that always worries me is, say, is it just i so always cheap? tell people i always tell people it's cheap enough well I, we were asked a question about not asked a question but i answered a question sort of this way in omaha right i said one of the things that i would have uh, you know that I, the mistake i made or that i would do differently if i could start over and stuff was learning the lesson of you don't have to maximize one variable as much. That it's okay that if each of the, it checks each of the boxes sort of. A stock is cheap enough, it grows fast enough, it, you know, whatever other things you need it to do. Then you don't need to find the two PE stock when you've got the perfectly good four PE stock, you know, that kind of thing. And there are people who really will do that. Well, it's a lot better, you know, like two's, I mean, 50% yield versus 25 is way better. But sometimes you have to tell yourself, if you re, if like if you could get a 20 25% earnings yield, you know, you have a 4 or 5 PE stock that's perfectly good, then why are you looking for one that's a 2 or a 1 or something that isn't and trying to to figure out the math behind that. And that's what happens with the net nets, I know, talking to people that the perfectly boring one that is a net net, they may look at another one and go, "Well, but this one actually like has some other things going for it. Maybe it's half as expensive, you know. So this one's at 90% of net current asset value, and this one's at 40%, you know. Um, or maybe it's in a market that seems like there's a big upside or whatever. But I try to stress, you have to understand just how cheap a net net is compared to other stocks. It's insanely cheap. Um, so if this ever gets recognized in net net as like just a normal business, you'll make a lot of money. So why not focus on the ones that that don't have any of that risk. And so I always tell people like, think like you're lending them money as a banker, not that you're buying into the stock. Cause then that should take away the upside thing. You mm-hmm. should just think, can I get repaid on a loan to this company? And then you start thinking, you know, that way. Um, so that's one of them. And the other one is uh, once the stock starts moving, they, they don't want to stay in it. Cause it's a net net, so it's garbage. You know, they're like, oh, it's, it's, it's bad. I don't want to be in it. Mm-hmm. But you gotta, you got to make some money on some of them. But say it's like you have to finesse it a little bit. I mean, like, when do you get out when it's not a net net anymore? So that bothers some people. But I always say, like, just hold it for a year and then reassess it then. So if you buy it, don't touch it for a year. 
than after year because for U.S. tax things and stuff, yeah. it's a, it's a little easier to do that way. So you decide, okay, do I want to sell it a little bit before years up, a little bit after? You know that at least that's trying to convince. I mean, that's not the real reason why I would suggest it, but I can kind of sell it to people on the idea that this is, helps you with your taxes. So if I can be like, you know, you could save some money in your taxes, or this is the right thing to do tax wise, then they'll do that, even though that's not at all the purpose of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, don't sell something three months into it. Let it go for a year because. There's no reason, I mean, it was a net-net, so it was way too cheap. And then it goes up 50%. Why did it go up 50%? There's no reason behind that. You didn't know it was going to go up 50%. But why sell it the moment it goes up 50%? You don't know it won't go up 100%. Give it a little time to, to see what happens there. Um, and so that's why I always say hold it for a year. And Or if you want to hold it for a different period of time, that's fine. But like pick a period of time and then reassess each time. What happens, why people sell, I think is they literally look at it every day. So one, you know, not normally, but once it jumps, let's say 30% in a brief period of time, which can sometimes happen, right? If there's a big move in a brief period of time, they start to look at it every day to think, should I sell it? And there's just so many cases where it's like, I might sell it and have made more money than someone else, but actually I'm not remotely close to the high for it. What happened is it, and it it goes up 50%, someone sells it, right? I sold it up 120%, but actually first it went up 200% and then it came back down a bunch. So it's not like People I timed it. I, it's not like I timed it, right? But I gave it enough time to let that happen. So even if people can only do like, okay, look at it once a month or look at it once every quarter. Because if you look at it every day, then like the mo moment it starts getting some real movement, whatever it is, some unusual price moment that it's going up, then the value investor is going to think I should sell it. And it just, there are, there will be occasional ones. There shouldn't be many, but there will be occasional ones that don't perform as you expect. And so you need a few big winners uh, to take care of that. Is it easier to do if you buy a basket as opposed to like just buying one? It doesn't, I mean, I, I don't notice it. a difference, but I recommend to other people that they buy baskets, not because it changes the performance that way, but it keeps them. Uh, Psychologically kind of helps. It helps that something is always happening. I don't think the diversification part is as important. I honestly think it's the attention part. If you can buy enough stocks, then some of them can not be your, what happens is you can become very focused that you have own stocks that aren't moving, that nothing's happening with them, right? So if you own 10 net nets, one or two will have some extraordinary thing happening each year with them, right? They'll be like in an industry that's in boom, in bust. Uh, there'll be offers to take them over. There'll be whatever. If you own three, there'll sometimes be years where there's no news and it'll drive you crazy. So my favorite situations are when fundamentals improve but the stock just basically trades sideways. Yes, but the hard thing about net nets is there isn't much in the way of fundamentals other than asset values and stuff. So people look at them and it drives them crazy. Of the stocks that we've talked about, like on the podcast a lot, it's most close, it's most close to something like NACO, right? Where people get worried because they're like, well, yeah, but like if the earnings were the same and then slowly going up every year, then they'd be a lot more comfortable with a stock like that. Where they're like, yeah, but maybe earnings will drop 50% next year. I don't really know. But maybe they'll double. I don't, I don't know. What, what exactly is the right number? And they start to think about it. And then it sort of feeds back. You look at the stock price and you're like, 
People are probably thinking that this is not going to be a good future for it. That's why the stock price is what it is. Maybe I should reassess how I think about it. All those things. And if you just looked at like earnings per share each year, you go, yeah, there's volatility, but the attitudes about it have changed much more. And a net net is kind of that same way where the earnings aren't super predictable, but the asset value is there and you sort of have to come up with the earning potential yourself. And so eventually you convince yourself that, you know, um, nothing good's going to happen. And then it's funny when it goes the other way because you start to think a lot of good things are going to happen. We actually talked, uh, I mean, off the podcast about certain net nets that when they, um, I mean, we don't even think of them as net nets anymore because something happened, an activist came in, uh, the business changed around a little bit, whatever. They get re- reassessed into something else and they just become a very cheap, small stock. Why is it with companies, and you kind of just talked about this, investors, they hate to see like year-over-year performance pull back a little bit where they start to think there's a lot of situations where you may know, okay, the next year, for example, a lot Mm -hmm. of companies that are lapping very high returns from, you know, through COVID, for Mm -hmm. example, they may know that, eh, you know, it may not be as good as it was last year. It may even pull back a little bit. So a lot of people feel the need to sell out in hopes to buy it lower. Right. This, I think, I feel like is always the big difference between you and me. I think you're very aware you're on all social media and things aware and worried of like jeff you know they're going to report lower earnings this quarter over quarter year ago yeah and that will cause all the investors to to flee the stock and everything i just care what the earnings are and what they're likely to be in the future mm-hmm. and i don't it, i would happily buy a stock that i you know i'd happily buy something at um some low PE, you know, five times earnings that I knew the earnings would drop 50% in the next year or two. Um, so that is, I'm now owning a stock that's at 10, 10 times earnings. Um, but it's going to go from there to better things. And I don't want to, I mean, to me, that you're just getting a stock at 10 times earnings that's then growing. Mm-hmm. Right, that's what you want. I mean, the Buffett thing with um, Disney and Mary Poppins. I, think, I should say I'm aware of it, but I'm also not to the point where it's like, oh my god, sell out. This is terrible. Like we're the ones that are going to want to buy back lower. I'm just aware of it. I'm like, yeah, this is on a year over year basis is going to be less than what it was probably last year. Yes, and uh, I mean uh, sometimes I know that that's going to happen, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how uh, people are going to react to it. I get more worried if they grew their expenses Mm -hmm. thinking that, because we've spoken a lot about how one of the biggest errors Mm -hmm. management could make is when they're planning for the future. Yeah. And they think a lot like the present situation is going to be the future. So maybe then they grow their cost base. That's Peloton and stuff like that. Exactly. And then it's like, holy smokes, there went my net income for the year because you're Cost base is way more expensive and revenue declined. Yeah, we'll That's see. A huge issue. Like in terms of the macro economy, but in the next year or so, we may see that with some things that benefit a lot, even from the pandemic. I mean, you know, even really well respected sorts of companies, even your Netflixes and your Amazons and things like that, expenses rose a lot and growth rose, but it isn't going to rise in future periods at the same rate. Um, it's normal for that to happen to any sort of company. Maybe people aren't as used to it with like um, a fast-growing tech company, but that sort of expansion and then lower returns after you've expanded is a normal part of a cycle, you know. And, and so, yeah, I mean, that's more what we're worried about is like uh, avoiding cyclical tops and things. 
That's what I would worry about. So I don't mind if earnings are going to be down next year versus future years. I do worry more like if I think this is the highest year for earnings, an abnormally high year, and they're not going to achieve it again in the future. That would pay too high a price. Which is why, to smooth it out, generally, we think about things on like a three-year average. Mm -hmm. But I've talked to lots of people who are, um, you know, like... uh, uh, let's say CarMart or something like that, or, or so. So that's lending w- with cars, but also um, uh, you've also had ones where it's uh, just car dealers, right? Uh, where they're they're just worried because they're like, well, they earned a lot more than they're going. You know, they just jumped so much, right? Their earnings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if we go on quick FS, I think we can look at what I mean with CarMart. So um, let's see, earnings jump to what? a share. And they were about seven, seven and a half before then. But they've been seven before, basically. So, I mean, it really jumped in the last few years. But if you think that they can get to earnings that they had before, you're talking about five to, uh, you know, seven, eight, eight dollars a share. Let's say five to seven dollars a share um, before. And they actually buy back stock all the time and all that. So let's pretend that you thought just this most recent year was the real issue that they earned like $15 a share and they're not going to do that. Okay. But you know, five to $7 a share when you're an $80, $90 stock. It's not crazy. We talked about the great compounding record it had and everything. There may be reasons for not buying the stock, but I don't think it being too expensive is one of them, but it is scary to say, Oh, well, I'm not really buying at a five P I'm really buying at like a 11 or something. Mm -hmm. But you know, if it was going the other way, Earnings were growing, and so that's how it got to a P of uh, 11, but you thought next year's earnings would be even better. Then you'd be excited by it. I mean, normally an 11 P on a stock with that kind of compound record that's outperformed the market for a long time, it would people would be really happy about that. So I don't really care which way it's going that way. If, if you buy at a P of 5, but you think earnings are overstate, you know, are, are cyclically way above where they're going to be in the future. But a lot of other people do care about that and maybe at this point that's been you know starting to be priced in a little bit more because the stock was at 160 and here we are today at 86 dollars yeah i wasn't looking at 160 no (laughs) i mean you know i'm saying i mean it we talked about it like the comparing to receivables and stuff and now they're they're gonna securitize some things they'll be a little different but basically price to book is a way of looking at it um and i even said just looking at price to loans including leverage but price to book one point uh what are we at 1.3 yeah okay 1.3 and the 10-year average return on equity 16 percent pretty like a really yeah. good price good to price. me yeah. that way um but it's a really good price with the understanding that it's gotta right it's gotta drop like you're not gonna earn as much but of course, it wouldn't be at a 5P or whatever unless everyone thought earnings were going to drop. Sure, yeah. But unless earnings drop by two-thirds and stay down, it's not going to be a 15P on average. So, and a lot of the market is a 15P. So, um, yeah, it's just it's just a difference that, that I have that way that I don't really care. Um, now, I care if earnings go down a lot. Uh, companies, a lot of times I do care if earnings go down because I think it's a really bad sign for the future of the business. That isn't really a pricing thing or a timing thing. It's just that businesses that have declines in profits tend to be much less attractive businesses than businesses that never have declining profits. Um, constantly increasing sales, gross profit, 
margins, earnings per share, all that stuff that we look at on QuickFS, it's usually a really good sign if it is almost a constant record of always achieving that and not having major declines. So we avoid like cyclical things a lot just in general, and they always have this kind of issue. Um, but yeah, I don't really care if we like lap a, a year that was better last, um, uh, that was, yeah, that was better last year. Like we're down because last year was a better year. Uh-huh. I mean, if you're going to buy an oil company or something, right? It, at some point, oil will be $150 a barrel. You know, there'll be a year where that happens. If that happens, then there will one day be a year where it's not as good. Just they're producing the same amount and everything, but the price just isn't as good. Sure. But that doesn't mean that it can't work out for you. Like, I can't believe that Buffett would buy into Chevron and Occidental if he thought there can never, I can't ever endure a year of down oil prices, you know? Yeah, we're going to talk about that in this podcast. But before we jump into our experience with Berkshire, I just want to give a update on the markets. I think a lot of people like listening to the COVID podcast for whatever reason, because it was sort of like uh, in the moment. Trapped in the, they may have yeah. needed a podcast. Maybe, but I mean like more so like just because we're doing like a day-by-day basis of what was happening. I have not gone and re-listened uh, to those podcasts and mm-hmm. I definitely never will. But <laughs> uh, where we currently sit today, Mark, We didn't make then, as many predictions as you think. Luckily, have you gone back and re-listened? Only because it has like other content. I've only done it to ones that had other content that someone told me I listened to this okay. thing. I thought we made a decent amount of predictions. Okay, too many predictions. I, I just thought, yeah. I mean, well, I know generally what we thought internally. Okay, probably didn't end up. Ha- I mean, did we think that there would just be this huge bull market and valuations no. would go crazy? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about. It. I mean, it's so funny because Buffett the amount of capital that he deployed in 2020 was de minimis to what's going on right now and how much capital he's employing. So it's interesting when you think about sort of that difference between 2020, that Wall Street Journal of Munger interview comes down and says the phone's not ringing off the hook. People were super surprised by that, right? There was a flood of capital into the markets. And then here we are in 2022 and one of the slides that he gave at the Berkshire meeting uh, was the amount of equities that they purchased from Jan 1 to March 31st, uh, $51 billion. And news even came out the other day, was it like yesterday or two days ago, that he bought another $350 million of Occidental. He now owns 15.2%. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. So I guess we're in good company if we didn't. Bought Activision. That's another thing. Yeah, he's doing uh, basically a little up to the maximum. Yeah. So I mean, that was a uh, one of the other two um, managers at Berkshire investment managers had bought the original stake in Activision, but uh, Buffett just because he didn't want misreporting of it or anything said that he is the one who bought like, the rest. I of it. bought it. Yeah, as a merger arbitrage thing. Yeah. Okay, so before we get into that though, uh, Mark has been more volatile. S and P five hundred is off about thirteen percent. When should we say when we're recording this and stuff? Uh, today's date is May six. Okay. Uh, S&P 500 off 13%, NASDAQ 21%. The 10-year is up to 3.06%. Natural gas, $8.79. And oil, as of when I was typing up this docket, is at $110 uh, per barrel. Mm. Uh, But the major news has been the Fed is raising interest rates uh, Mm. by 50 basis points. 75 basis points was on the table. And as soon as one of the guys asked Jay Powell if 75 basis points is something they're going to consider. And he basically said, no, absolutely not. The stock market, you know, rallied like crazy mm-hmm. uh, after that announcement. And then we sold off a bunch. Uh, but uh, so they've 
risen basically 75 basis points as like a target range is where we right. sit right now for the Fed fund rate. This year, that's what we're up. Yeah. Technology has gotten destroyed. Lots of uh, tech companies have round tripped through COVID. Okay. I think I actually saw a chart. I don't know if it was the daily shot that mm. showed like, I don't know if it was like a five-year return of tech and energy. And I think energy recently lapped tech. Yeah. Just because everything that's going on. Um, so that's where we're at currently in the world. And, you know, it's funny. We uh, were just recently speaking with somebody and even he was talking about how, sure, prices have come down. But like on a valuation perspective, it would take like another 30 to 40% of like these high quality businesses to fall for him yeah. to actually feel like, okay, it's time to back the truck up. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a sort of, a, I don't know, challenging in today's markets? I mean, maybe not for you because the way that we invest and stuff like that, it's not, I mean, we're not the type that's going to go out and be like, oh, this is 30% off. It's 52 week high. This means it's cheap. Obviously. Yeah. Oh no. I think that's very, yeah, absolutely. I think that's very challenging. I mean, that's what got a lot of uh, value managers and just in general investors and stuff in 2000 bubble is uh, they didn't own the tech things. But then when GE or Home Depot or Coke or Gillette or whatever is down 30, 40%, then they're like, well, this is a really good opportunity and they mm -hmm. buy it. But actually, it's it's actually a premium to where it had really traded on average before. I mean, in some cases, one and a half times or something, even after it's dropped by half, you know, because they got really high PEs. So, yeah, I think in the mega cap type stocks at that time, it was a, an issue. Um, because what can happen is, you know, they kind of know it's expensive, right? But you're like, but this is a real company. This isn't pets.com or something, right? Like, this is a real company. This is, you know, and that happens to anyone, especially anyone who needs to kind of be for career reasons, needs to kind of be 100% invested. Mm -hmm. Then what do you do? Sometimes you compromise on price. By the thing that's come down a little, is a little bit cheaper and it's like the kind of business that you want to own. But really, you maybe aren't realistic with yourself about what that means for returns going forward, right? Yeah. One thing I've learned since working with you is just how careful you are, I would say. Okay. <laughs> In the sense of uh, the multiples that you do pay for these businesses. It's a very like common sense approach to it. Like general, I mean, our pitch book that's on focus compounding, it says like think PE of 13, which probably sounds just absolutely crazy to everybody. Yeah, I would say to people, you know, 13, not 30. Yeah. Is is basically just what I mean is like when people ask like us about us being value investors and stuff, we own some things that are really cheap, right? But we don't as much as, as I don't think we as much as people think we do go hunting for that low price to book that whatever like the stock. two times or three right. times p yeah we've owned crap company the, we we've owned them when it it gets to be such a big difference that mathematically it makes sense you know um because at some level it does i mean a 5p versus a 15p is a really big difference and so if the 5p is durable it doesn't have to grow much or anything but if it's durable and it's not destroying value then yeah it makes sense to buy it um, but absent that, we would much rather buy the better businesses. It's just that mostly when people talk to us about it, they're at like 30. Uh, like this isn't a totally unreasonable price, right? And uh, it's not. If, if they execute on what they expect to for a lot of these companies, it may give you a market type return, like a return that it had in the past, the market's average in the past or something kind of return. Like you might get a 9% return in this stock. Uh, 
even if you buy it at 33 times earnings, you know? Um, so even if almost all of it comes from growth, there's almost there's very, very little current return when you're down at like a 3% earnings yield and you're retaining some of the earnings. Um, but it's a lot harder um, to make sure that you get that kind of return. So when I say that we're value investors, it basically is just the discipline of paying somewhat on average, somewhat below average prices for almost everything. Yeah. Yeah. But not necessarily a lot below average. No. Yeah. Um, so it, it's more of like a, if you looked at the distribution of PE ratios and things of what we have uh, owned, what we own now and what we have in the past, I'd say it's almost more that everything is skewed below a certain point, more so than uh, it's like th there's much less of a uh, wide distribution that you see even in value funds. Um, with what we're doing. It's not so much that these extremely low multiples and stuff. It's more that there's like an almost never buying things at prices that, you know, half the the market, I mean, half the purchases made by the market is probably above a level that we would not buy above. I mean, so when, you know, you look at medium PE recently or something, there's different ways of calculating it. But probably half of all purchases that people are making when they buy into a stock in the last year or two, have probably been done at prices that are above the teens, so twenty and up. Mm -hmm. And we really, we really don't do that. Yeah, I was us like really paying ups like fifteen times. <laughs> I mean, remarkable. So, yeah. So we really don't pay a price that probably half of all the purchases people are making is the price for it. So we're in the bottom half in terms of expensiveness, um, and that kind of hopefully that kind of discipline on that helps because the idea is at least historically that when you have a bear market, you know, um, you'll have less compression in your multiples if you bought the right kinds of companies. If you bought bad companies, it's not going to work that way. But if you bought the perfectly good companies at the multiples like 13 instead of 30, 30 can come down to 15 real easy. Um, you get a bear market, if there's a recession at the same time, you know, whatever, it, it can happen. And so the business can be coming along nicely, but uh, you, you got a major unrealized loss from that that really hurts returns. Whereas you can get much um, much better results and very good relative results owning something that you bought at a, a fairly low price, but kind of keeps up with uh, those other kinds of stocks. You know, so. I wonder too, like psychologically, right? So going from a 30 PE to 15, are you kind of then betting on the beauty contest again in the future? Like think about all these companies that went public at insane valuations or even in the private market at insane valuations. Are you kind of betting on, well, hopefully there's a bubble in the future and we'll have easy money again and we'll get back to those just insane valuations. So yeah. I wonder like psychologically if... This is the way. <laughs> if you if you stick with this that stock, yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Now a lot of people are doing more. They rotate a little bit more their strategy from what they're in. Not just like selling one stock and buying another, but like at different points, you should have a strategy that's different, that's based somewhat on your expectations for the market, for uh, interest rates, for the economy, themes of different kinds, whatever. So sometimes it might be expect those multiples to expand um and and stuff like that can be very successful so if you if you're buying tech things let's say like really high quality fast growing 
um, type businesses that aren't really earning anything right now, and you were doing that while rates were falling, maybe you did that because you had that belief that rates would be really low for a long time. Some some people do. I mean, I there's some cases I want you know pick out particular names of people, but they actually it's not just that they like tech things. They actually say as part of that that part of it is based on their beliefs about kind of secular economic trends. So if you believe in really low inflation, really low interest rates, um, really low growth overall in the economy, and a lot of it coming from tech type things, then you'd have a that would make a lot of sense to be betting on that kind of um, uh, sector more. What are your thoughts on people that when they buy companies at like a 30 PE and they underwrite their return, they assume it's, they're going to be able to sell it at a 30 PE 10 years from now. I mean, is that a tough way to make money? Mm-hmm. But often you're, if the, the surprise in terms of the business is good enough that it doesn't matter. I wonder how the math works. Like, let's say a 30 PE goes to a 15 PE, but while you hold it, growth has actually been good enough or pretty high. So I wonder how that works out from like the math. Well, of it I all. calculate that for you in, in the slides on those more growth things. I mean, we can look at some businesses that I uh, have liked in the past and stuff, but I think the multiples are, are tough. Uh, we've talked about FICO before. We yeah. could do that one. That's a good example. Um, but there are others, and we can go through a few of them. So, um, so this is not, uh, bad in terms of the, um, I mean, compared to other stocks, it's not terrible. So your operating margin real recently was at like 30 or something, although historically it'd been closer to 20, not that many years ago it was at about 20. Your, um, price to sales and EV to sales are seven, eight times. So if you had like price to sales of seven times and you are at 35% margin, you know, that's that's not crazy for a high-quality company. This is a pretty slow-grown company. It's not a value stock at that level, but, you know, it, you could definitely understand someone buying that at that price. Um, so we're not there, right? The, the price to sales, EV to sales is a little bit more elevated than that, and the operating margin has had, like, one year where it was 30%. You know, in all the past years, it was a lot lower. Yeah, and that'd be, I mean, how would you sort of handicap that? If you're going to extrapolate that going forward, how would you think about that operating margin? Yeah, so like until the the most recent year or two, I think you would have thought an okay price to pay for this kind of business is four or five times sales, right? Um, and now you got a pretty high price. But also, if we look at, um, you have a chart of FICO, yeah, so you can see. Because if we could do like, you know, yeah. So if you do longer term than five years, if you, yeah, maybe we could see like the 10 year. Now it just looks like it's a great stock for all times or whatever, but that's not really true. If you look, I mean, because it just smushes it down so you can't really tell, but it was not so great for 2000 to 2010 or something. Um, But since 2010, it started to go up a huge amount. And um, it, it peaked though, how far back now? at an even higher price. So it peaked, what, one and a half, yeah, like 50% higher or something um, than where we are now. So, and it, it was up there for a little while. So that just gives you an idea, what would have had to have been 10 times sales or something, which is incredible um, price to pay for something that is, you know, not very rapidly growing. 
I mean, the only way you can kind of justify 10 times sales is very rapid growth for a long time into the future. That's a big difference this time from like um, dot com and certainly from any years otherwise. Normally, there's almost no stocks at 10 times at over 10 times sales. Dot com, you had a few. Now you have a bunch. Um, it's some of the only times you have. So it kind of tells you if there's a bubble or not, because more than 10 times sales is very unusual for any company to have. Um, but you know, so there's lots of others that, that get to kind of multiples that we haven't paid before. We've always liked Copart as a company, haven't owned it because of multiple probably. Um, I think, uh, ones that I talked about in the past, uh, as being very high quality companies were like exponent ball. A lot of those, you know, they're not, it's just the, the prices are difficult, so they, they can work out okay or good. They can beat the market maybe if they execute on everything that they're talking about doing. But the upside can't be that big unless you maintain really high multiples. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an interest rate thing because in general, really high quality companies don't always trade at, you know, 30 times earnings or whatever some of these companies are at. So that's why we avoid it. Um, but you can see that it also makes it difficult because, you know, say I bought FICO, um, how long would I be able to hold it for? You know, maybe I could have held it for five years if I was really patient and stuff, but you know, uh, seven, eight, nine years later, you miss a lot of the upside, right? You miss two, three, four times upside in the stock probably at the end there because you're not willing to pay. 40, 50 times PEs, you know, at that point you'd sell out. So Omaha, as -hmm. I did say, we did go to Omaha this year. First time ever. What are, uh, what are your thoughts? You've had some time to reflect. What are your thoughts on the time that we spent in uh, Nebraska? It was interesting. A lot of people, everyone was there because of uh, the Berkshire meeting. So uh, we met way more people than I expected who've listened to the podcast. That was definitely a bigger number than I expected. And uh, it's like I told you, a lot of people listen, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. We'll we'll see. Uh, we've talked about like maybe if we could figure out how to do something with that in the future at some point, right? I think we'll it'd see. be cool if we could uh, do a podcast in person. Yeah. So we were at the Willow Oak event mm-hmm. and. It was like a panel discussion and it'd be cool if we could have uh, sort of a live audience, but we do like some sort of interactive podcast where maybe we're doing snap judgments for people. We maybe Jeff and I do like a quick, you know, whatever. And then we start talking and taking questions from people. I don't know. I didn't realize that there were sufficient numbers of people actually at uh, in Omaha when we were there and wanting to meet with us and stuff uh, just to see us and say hi and stuff. Uh, that we could do something like that. But certainly there were when we were there. Yeah, there were enough that we could actually do a, like a podcast um, for people, for an actual audience there, yeah, for people to be in the room. Yeah, it was a interesting experience. I think it's it's funny because you look around and all you see is people that you know work in the industry. <laughs> yeah, you kept pointing people out to me. I'm not so good at uh, spotting people, I think. Yeah, I was telling Jeff that I felt like it almost felt like I was in some sort of alternate universe because mm-hmm. here you are in this pretty clean, small city mm-hmm. that's surrounded by farmland and cornfields. And mm-hmm. it was beautiful out one day we were walking around and I was like, oh, there's that fund manager that I recognize. And there's mm-hmm. that fund manager that I recognize. I almost felt like 
that's what my version of the afterlife would look like. It was kind of, <laughs> it was odd. It's sort of in that um, regard. And just even everywhere you went, I mean, there's just so many people that go to Berkshire, but there's a lot of people that just go there for the weekend as well and do everything else, but go to the annual general meeting. So yeah, we, we could have gone a little bit earlier, stayed a little bit longer. I did not realize how much stuff there was that we could do. The people said, you should go to this, you should do that. I'll uh, want to see you there or whatever. Um, of people that we like knew, knew us um, and want to talk to us and all that. So it was, it was more than I expected. Yeah. It was yeah. definitely more than I expected related to the podcast. Like way more people who listened to the podcast were there. And um, I didn't expect that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it makes sense because of what, you know, the podcast is all about and who's there at the event. Um, or I should say at the whole weekend thing. Um, yeah. So, so that was good. It's and, great to meet up with investors, other investors, talk stocks. Yep. I mean, I certainly expected all that would happen. So the stuff with like professionals and things like that, I certainly expected that seeing other fund managers and things, you know, that, that was different. It was just the number of people who, you know, um, listen to the podcast who um, are interested in that kind of thing. And, and uh, yeah, we, I didn't realize that it was big enough that we could do something like that. I mean, it's something we should probably think about. So if you're ever thinking about being in Omaha in a future year, you know, let us know or suggest things to us about what we should do. And if you have not gone, I definitely recommend going. It's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So what did you think about the actual annual meeting? We did not go to that, but we did watch it old school style on the well, internet. In a stairwell? <laughs> in a, it, was a, it was a hotel decent. Stairwell, Our basically. hotel, the office, the business section of the hotel was taken. Right. So I was trying to find a quiet spot for Jeff and I to be able to watch it. Basically, we are getting ready for the event and stuff like that. We had a Willow Oak event right after mm -hmm. like right after the the annual meeting so i found a stairwell that had two nice large chairs mm -hmm. and a coffee table i was happy with the hotel we stayed at, yeah. yeah yeah so i was just like oh this is this looks like this was made for us mm -hmm. we sat down and we watched it first annual uh general meeting in person uh, with a live audience i should right. say uh first in three years got to see munger and buffett up uh what were your thoughts of the meeting itself i also read a transcript so since, you know, between that time and now, I've read a transcript and marked it up and stuff. I was, so I probably more positive on it than some other people because getting away from seeing it, uh, seeing the, uh, them talking it through and everything, uh, Buffett and, and Munger, uh, and seeing their actual words and everything, I think it was more interesting than I realized when I, before I had read the transcript. So what was conflating? Well, one, you kind of like when you're seeing it live and anything could happen, you're always thinking about like uh, expecting more news, I guess, kind of thing. You know, that, that just happens with anything. And then you miss out on some of the things you go, actually, that was a good point that they made about this or that. And then the other thing is a lot of people were concerned about their age and everything of Buffett mm -hmm. Munger and felt that they were slower in answering the questions and they certainly answered fewer questions. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when before they took a break for lunch. I was like, wow, they've answered like, I don't know. I think he says handful think he of questions, questions yeah. or something. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Buffett was, he was monologuing a lot. <laughs> he was monologuing, yeah. I think they've definitely changed in tone since uh, since the COVID one where he sat up there alone and, you know, took, went through slides about like, you know, what happened in the Great Depression and things like that. Since then, there's been more of that sort of thing. I feel like more more slides type things, more monologue type things, sure. So what are some things that you thought were interesting then? 
Oh, I thought the Occidental thing was very interesting where he talked about how much he could buy of the company in such a short period of time. And I think it's something we talk about all the time that some stocks we look at. I mean, we so we've talked about movie theater stocks, for instance, on this podcast. I think it's I mean, there's like no shareholder base. There's some insiders who own stuff and then shares trade like crazy. Everyone's just betting wildly on them obviously over short periods of time based on kind of what they think is going to happen with consumer confidence and stuff in the economy. It's, I mean, it's not even a thing that's earnings or that volatile. And so it's just crazy um, gambling that way. And Occidental shares are exactly that. This, you know, he talked about how look 40% of the company is probably owned by some sort of long-term passive type money. So there's two thirds left. So basically they bought about 15%. So it's a quarter, basically. They bought a quarter of what you could buy realistically. And they bought in, what, weeks, right? Yeah, I mean, so we got January 1st to March. Yeah, go March. back to the 1980s, um, you know, uh, junk bond takeover, sort of the, you know, corporate raider period. If corporate raiders could have done that, companies would be in a lot more danger. Yeah. Um, before you even realize you need a poison pill, someone owns a <laughs> yeah. quarter of you, you know? You know, it's so funny in our experience, I feel like the names that we feel like we're going to have an easy time acquiring the stock, yeah, those have turned out to be one of the more challenging companies to get yeah, the I shares. Yeah, we should talk about this more. And, yeah. the, and the companies that were like, oh, that's just so illiquid, that's going to be a challenge. We've been able to yes. acquire the stock and yep. been pleasantly surprised. So I've mm -hmm. just come to terms with, I just think it's, it's random. <laughs> I yeah. mean, the shareholder base and learning more about that, who owns what, and how much of the float is owned by who and stuff like that could help you. But there are some names that I've looked at before and I'll go to a Yahoo Finance. This is literally how I do it. Or over the counter markets, I take the average volume and I just generalize by multiplying it by mm -hmm. 252 trading days a year ish. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I could see how if we work this over time, we could acquire a decent amount of stock. But I don't know. I mean, <laughs> we were talking about there's a very illiquid company that was able to sell uh Five percent of the stock pretty easily and it's just i'm mm -hmm. always kind of surprised i've learned right and so the reason for that right is that you had a seller who didn't want to sell in dribs and drabs probably and you may have even had buyers i mean we're buyers sometimes like this that if someone's like well i got a hundred shares we're not just a hundred shares so we're not going to buy a hundred shares here and there over time and, and whatever but if we start to see a lot of volume then we'd be buying in the open market that way otherwise you might be looking for blocks and things like that or you know whatever sort of like what buffett was talking about he, he basically he didn't intend to buy that much occidental in that short period of time what he said is like okay buy 20 or 30 percent of the company uh, of the volume each day and uh, take blocks and that makes perfect sense. But that's something he's been saying since, I think, when he's talked about buying Coca-Cola and buying IBM. He basically said 20 30% of the volume and take blocks. And you don't know how much of the company you'll get. And when we buy some things, we don't know how much the company will get. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's appreciated. Um, whenever I talk to people, they have this idea that, like, there's a certain amount of liquidity in a stock. They can gauge what it is. Oh, this one's one and a half times more liquid than this one. You don't know until you go out there and until it's about the amounts that you need to buy that way. And there's a lot of academic things where they kind of estimate that. I don't think it's easy to estimate the costs of the liquidity stuff. I don't think it's easy to estimate how patient you might have to be in buying and selling stocks. And um, my experience has been very different from what some people expected. I've many times bought into and sold out of stocks that people said you're not going to get the shares that you need. I mean, they did in a matter of a couple trades. 
um, because no one was really going out there instead of saying, I'm here to buy 100 shares, say I'm here to buy 15,000. Yeah, and that's like sort of, I guess, building these, I don't want to call them relationships, but if people know that, hey, I mean, I think every company we've, we're involved with, we own stock in, we let people know if you ever yeah, come across a large block. Of, instead. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to let anyone, they don't know what Berkshire's up to and then suddenly yeah. they own a bunch of it. Come yeah. on across a large block of stock, call us. We don't want to negotiate. Think of us as the best bid because we're not going to negotiate. And if you want to move some stock, let us know. Yeah, and when I've talked about some of the mistakes that I've made, um, my regrets that I've had in terms of the last few years, um, it is not that we could have gotten a much better price in some cases. It's that if we had timed things better, if I'd been willing to jump in in a big way in a middle of a crisis like like um, COVID um, or certain really bad days in the market, you know, and been really aware of it and done that, we could have gotten more volume because, you know, um, there are days where for no reason, I mean, for a reason, the market's, you know, everyone's scared in the market, yeah. but for no reason specific to a company, suddenly you can buy two weeks worth of volume in a morning or an afternoon or whatever. And it's, it's, um, in some cases even more. Oh yeah. And sometimes that can last a few days, you know, and sometimes it doesn't. Obviously, at the bottom of COVID, you could have bought, uh, you know, in, in this book you gave me, Trillion Dollar Triage. Um, I guess March 23rd was sort of the bottom that that week. And, uh, yeah, you had really, really high volume from some things. And, uh, and some, we saw high volume in some stocks that we were buying or interested in buying. Sometimes we even knew it has nothing to do with the business. It's a distressed seller, things like that. Um, and anyway, even if you didn't know that, you could guess that in a lot of these cases, obviously. So I, I think my advice to everyone on these things is uh, you don't know how liquid or, or illiquid something is until you start to try to buy into it. And also to pay attention to that when you're doing it. And if it was like impossible to get into that way, you might want to think that it might be pretty impossible to get out of. Although a lot of that will depend on how well the business performs. My experience is the business performs really well for a long period of time. And you want to sell out at a time that's perfectly placid. Uh, you'll be surprised by how much, how good the liquidity is and stuff. If things go badly for the business for a while and you need to unwind at the same time everyone else does, it'll be ugly. Um, but there was actually a lot more of Buffett and Munger talking about the extreme speculative environment he took, uh, than I think people like kind of put in the headlines. And like as I read the transcript, I realized they're – like they're not being pushed into saying these things. They're bringing this up and talking jabs. about it and doing this themselves. Well, even the Occidental thing, Buffett basically said, this is insane. This is like a, it wasn't just like, look how much we could buy. And isn't that a neat little thing for me to explain to you? It's, there are entire decades or whatever, where people are thinking mostly about investment type stuff. And then there's things that are just pieces of paper to be traded around. You know, he does the thing where he talks about the, if you're thinking in terms of these um, short-term options, yeah, and as you said, Occidental is a pretty big, uh, been around a very long time, business that a lot of people should understand, and it traded like crazy. It always amazes me when I look at some of the things, like like the biggest um, movie theater companies and things like that, that once you back out the people who are going to hold it no matter what, there's no shareholder base at all. I mean, it trades crazy on those things. Um, 
and at times there have been some shareholder base and things like airlines and stuff, but but a lot of these, oil certainly recently has been like this. Uh, but we've even talked about how it surprised me with banks that people are like funds, um, active funds, are like interested in owning a lot of banks and just owning banks generally, and then not owning banks. It's like a strategy thing. But you don't see them pick out, here's the bank I want to own 4.9% of, and I'm going to hold it. That's so rare that they think that way. It, you know, Why I, is that? I guess macro stuff. I guess. I don't know what else it is. Because we know some banks vastly outperform other banks uh, over long periods of time, which could be their, their time horizon if they want it to be. Uh, they just seem to get more exposure from... from um, churning it more uh changing the weighting you know in terms of an asset allocation thing to being really underweight banks being really overweight at some points instead of kind of having a more consistent exposure to the banks they like the most berkshire's the opposite much more more consistent exposure to the banks they like the most very much so and if you take american express into that definitely so uh you know while he owns a bunch of financial things it's not like he owns them and then gets out of them and stuff he's very long term in them so that, you know, that's why he does it. Um, but others don't. And I think that I, and maybe that's true for energy too. And that's part of it. Like Occidental, um, because you see it with tech and stuff where people pick out their favorite and they hold it, you know, mm -hmm. they like Amazon and that's the one that they do. Um, what do you think he likes about Occidental? Because where we sit today, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, oh, I he purchased know exactly another he likes about Occidental. Um, 5.9 million shares on Monday and Tuesday of this week. Did you read the thing he was talking about? With nearly all the purchases occurring on Monday, Berkshire now holds 142.3 million shares of Occidental at a 15.2% interest. So did you read what he talked about? He's talked about it a couple times now. So I, I listened to the earnings call thing and they had some presentations. Occidental's stuff, so earnings call? Yeah, because yeah, okay. Buffett had mentioned it. It's capital allocation. Yeah. They were very explicit about their capital allocation. So In what way? They're not going to pay off. So it was interesting. They're not going to pay off all their debt right away. They, they didn't say we're, our goal is to get to like nothing in terms of debt. Um, they, I think, we'll see how long oil prices stay high and stuff. But I think that is probably the reason why he's most interested uh, and probably the reason why people were least interested in Occidental because it had done things in the past, including one with Berkshire's backing, that I think people uh, were not happy about them for. Uh, you know, they just, it had a reputation for bad capital allocation. What would they do historically with their capital? So I think the reputation is taking on a lot of debt, acquiring things at the top of cycles and things like that. Yeah. And so this time around. They said they're not going to do that. What are they going to do? Pay off? Well, or you can read it exactly. Stock, pay dividends. You can read it exactly, but it's almost Fed-like in how detailed it is about like. So at this rate, we'll do this much. So like, we're probably only going to pay off this amount. That is, you know. So let's say free cash flow is, you know, it, some number that they expected two billion within this time period, and it becomes five billion or whatever. They weren't saying, okay, well then that five billion goes straight to buybacks, or five billion goes straight to paying off debt or whatever. It was much more okay. Um, then we have to start thinking about, okay, if we've done that, then we can um, uh, we can do other things with it. But I think it made a great deal of 
sense, especially because it kind of admitted we have no idea what oil prices will be and kind of took that as the the way of thinking about mm-hmm. it. So, you know, many oil companies that I look at, and I look at much, much smaller oil companies, but basically what they start with is at $80 a barrel or at $40 a barrel or whatever, here's our free cash flow, mm-hmm. or basically here's some much more uh, higher level EBITDA type thing that's a cash flow figure that we then use to do our CapEx and whatever our plans are. And then based on that, they say what our capital spending program is and all of that, and they project this out a few years. And usually this is worthless because it ends up being higher, lower, whatever, way different than the price that they talked about. You know, it'd be more interesting if they kind of explain it as like a waterfall thing of like, okay, the first... 100 million of of uh cash that we get in will go to debt or whatever but then but then we don't need to pay down faster than that so the next 100 million could go to buying back stock or it could go to making these acquisitions or whatever they're often not honest with you about that instead they have these very detailed capital spending programs these very detailed things about what's our break even of it and everything and you know it's fine in a lot of markets not even today's market this won't even work as well but it's fine in sort of giving you an idea of what the next six months to a year will probably look like. And especially if you punch in a number and say, oh, well, I think they're a little lower or higher than what it will be. Um, but I'm sure that Buffett's investment is is a capital allocation thing, that he looked at what they were saying and said, that doesn't sound bad. Now, that sounds good, but they're not going to do something dumb. Mm-hmm. And that's what I need to know when they have a lot of free cash flow coming in. I wonder, do you think that was in like the 10K or 10Q? I think Buffett has said he doesn't listen to earnings calls and stuff like that. I read a transcript of the earnings call and they did some sort of presentation. He references something in there about a presentation mm-hmm. or something. And I'm, I feel pretty sure that I saw the same thing he did. Might have been investors. Did, I don't know. I read two different things. And they were, although I'm describing those two different things, they're very similar. Like they were, the, the management was obviously sticking to the same talking points, right? Like this was decided that way. And that's why I mean it was almost fed like that way. And like, this is what we're going to say, how we're going to say it. Um, And also just like, they seem to have a really high awareness that what they were communicating was their capital allocation plan, right? It wasn't like they're just being asked about stuff. It's like they came up with something probably because they feel maybe that's the key thing for them to decide, or maybe they realize that's why the market didn't like them in the past. Why do you think higher oil prices and energy prices are here to stay? I why does, I why does Buffett that. think that? You, uh, think, you think it's a play on higher prices? Commodity things are interesting with Buffett because he's often bought into those things and he's, he's sometimes lost a bunch of money on commodity things, you know? He's made a bunch too, but he's had some wrong bets on um, oil stuff. Uh, he bought a lot of ConocoPhillips at one time. Um, he... Uh, also had some losses um, on some bonds, actually. Um, that was somewhat based on, on energy stuff, too, if we broaden out what we mean by energy. So um, I, he's definitely had – he's been much more um, bullish long-term on oil prices than a lot of people seem to be, I guess. That's been true of, uh, of him, I'd say. And uh, he, he's certainly interested in it and in buying into those kinds of companies. I don't know if this will work out for him. 
and also he bought a lot of Chevron. I mean, we're talking about Occidental all the time because that he bought like a lot as a percentage of the company, but he actually also bought a lot of Chevron mm-hmm. too. Um, it's also just cheap, you know. Um, these things are very cheap compared to other companies of the size that he can buy. Obviously, it's a size thing that Berkshire needs a lot of uh, needs a lot of stock to trade in some very big companies, and oil is a just tons of examples of that. There's a lot of money you could put into oil. Not because it's actually that big a part of like uh, an index or something, because it's not. But the, the the average company size is very large, uh, or there, I should say, there's a lot of companies that are large enough for Berkshire to buy a bunch of it. So in this case, you know, you could buy 10% of the company. It's only you know it's six billion dollars. That's pretty good. Um, you repeat that a couple times, and you've put a lot of money to work. Mm-hmm. And Oxygen is not one of the biggest that there is. Yeah, and as we said, he is putting a lot of money to work. So on that slide that he showed during the meeting in um, first quarter, $51.8 billion, uh, he was put to work. The peak day was March 4th, where he was able to put $4.6 billion of purchases. And so it is kind of interesting how they weren't too active through COVID. But mm-hmm. now that the world has kind of settled a little bit more, the outlook is probably a little bit more I don't want to call it certain, but not as uncertain as it was well, we during March of 2020. A, we could look at a chart here. So let's look at an accidental chart because there's some interesting things about Buffett from this. Um, let's look at like a year, uh, one year. One year is probably the best. Okay. All right. So what days was he buying? Uh, January 1st to February 18th. Not a lot of purchasing. The purchasing really happened February 21st to yeah. March 15th. 41 billion, February yeah. 21st to March 15th. So okay. like in this area. Yeah. Right. So. Um, Basically, I remember we looked at this, I think on the pod, like you could see it was. So that was the near the highest prices the volume. in a while. Right. Um, he was buying as it was going up double digits in a day sometimes. Obviously, there was news about oil prices, war, things like that at the time. Um, so, but pretty high oil prices, pretty high stock price. And he was still buying at like high. So I wonder if that's why he got more aggressive, because if you look at the time frame, when, I mean, when did the whole Russia and Ukraine thing start? It was end of February. It's possible, but we also have to keep in mind if he was saying buy 20, 30% of the volume and take any blocks, did Berkshire cause that huge jump up in volume that you see there? Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Or did other people cause it? And he just started. And he was taking what was there. Yeah, take what was there. You know, like sometimes we say like they're much more aggressive or something. I don't know. Were they more aggressive or was there suddenly a lot of volume available? And there was a low. Because if we start the year, right, January, beginning of January, how low is that volume? Uh, Beginning of 2022, the. Yeah, you could see it spike up. Right. So, I mean, you know, like if he was buying literally in the beginning of January, there's no volume there. And then there's huge volume later. Um, but then there's also a big price move. But I also thought it was interesting. He's willing to buy a lot in a short period of time. He's willing to buy whatever anyone's willing to give him in a sense like that he would set a level that has to do with volume, which I thought was interesting. Also, although he has this reputation as a value investor and everything, the purchases are not necessarily made at particularly low points in the recent history of the company, right? He thinks it's cheap. He buys it. But actually, he's not afraid of buying on days when it's setting a record for mm-hmm. – you know, look, okay, so basically, you know, but those aren't bad prices versus, you know, years ago that we're looking at. Those aren't bad prices if you go back to like before COVID hit. 
But otherwise, some people will be like, look, it's setting a record each month, mm-hmm. each week at the time. They're waiting for buying. a pullback. Wait for a pullback, yeah. But more than waiting for a pullback is speeds up his buying. He's willing to buy a lot of volume at a, you know, at a record price. I do think he's very um does not care what the price is versus the historical past. I believe that. Now I say that because it's self-serving because I'm a big believer in that. <laughs> so of course I'm like, well, Buffett must think the way I do. But I do think that value investors, all investors, right, think a lot about is that an all-time low? Is it an all-time high? Is it coming down a little bit right now? Is it coming up? And I think he's like, is $50 a share a good, good price? Yeah, it's purely you know, valuation for him. Yeah. But a lot of people get scared. You know, we'll see if this works out for him. But a lot of people don't say, okay, let's buy 10 or 20 times more as it's rising. Yeah. Like, even though it's just a little, inc- even when you're talking about a little increase, even if stock's only up a few percent, a lot of people won't speed up their purchase. No, absolutely not. They just won't do it. Yeah. Even though he may have always wanted, of course, he always wants like 20% of the company or something because he has to put a ton of money to work, you know? Now, this is a company he's very familiar with because they'd done the preferred and the warrants and all that stuff. So uh, so he, he knew it well. That's why I think it is the capital allocation thing personally. But I mean, I'm not, not, I shouldn't say I personally think that when asked about it, that's the only thing he's ever mentioned about it, right? Is the capital allocation? I think so. He said, you know, they laid out how they're going to spend their money. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought when I, when I read it. Yeah. Doesn't it seem like a lot of oil companies during this cycle, they're not, they're much more focused on capital allocation. Yes. I've noticed that from a lot of these mm-hmm. companies with well, natural you, gas you, being worth 10, the yeah. price of oil being worth 10, a lot of them are like, no, we're going to pay down our debt, buy back our because stock. They, we're not going to increase production, stuff like that. Right. Because the last time, going back, what, five to 10 years ago now, closer to 10, um, the last time they had a really strong oil market, um, gas market, they managed on like record what should have been record free cash flow, I should say, on like record cash flow from operations, they managed to spend even more on CapEx. So like debt even rose during that period. So yeah, there's a lot of energy lenders that are definitely turned off from the market compared to what they would have been 10 years ago or something. And a lot of investors who are very worried about it, sure. It's been making me think about like rational actors in the industry or irrational actors. And I mean, is that something that you think could keep the price of oil hovering higher for longer? I don't think this time around. So I'll mention the book Trillion Dollar Triage, which is a lovely gift uh, from Andrew. Uh, I have the same feeling about it that uh, of them with that book. When I read that book, you know, one of the things that it's, it's not said in the book, but it's sort of the big takeaway that I have from it. And we say sometimes off the podcast, you know, People always ask, will they make the same mistake they did last time? No, <laughs> they'll make a different mistake. And I don't mean that to be critical of the Fed, but people always get obsessed with the idea that the the problem will be the same one that it was last time. Yeah. And it won't be. The Fed did not have enough inflation coming out of the last, um, the, the financial crisis, right? And so they made a different mistake this time. Oil companies spent like the future was going to be durable that way, that higher prices were going to be durable, going back almost, oh, not that long after the point we're talking about with the Fed. When you get to a point where you're closer to 10 years than five years ago, you forget about that time and you think like 
that this time it, it, that we're not going to make the same mistake that we did before. It's long enough for that. So you make a different mistake. Um, and as an investor, that could be good because they don't um, quickly move to produce as much. Uh, and then everyone adjusts their thinking very slowly about predictions, whether it's predictions about inflation, whether it's predictions about interest rates, whether it's predictions about oil prices um, compared to what it was before. But you've read lots of books about the fracking things and all that, and you know how mm -hmm. different it is that way. Yeah. So it burned a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And you, we probably talked to a lot of investors who would say, I'm not investing in that stuff. Yeah. But last time they might have because they hadn't been burned yet, you know, that same way. Because to have been burned that way, you had to have been an investor 30 years before then. It hadn't been that crazy in like 30 years. So, uh, yeah, I think they make, they'll make different mistakes and stuff, which hopefully this time means that they, hopefully if you're an investor in, in energy things and natural gas and oil, means that they won't bring as much supply on as mm -hmm. quickly. So far, we've seen that. Actually, some, uh, some stuff is below, in the United States, some stuff is below the levels that it was when COVID happened. So, so that's not bad. I mean, if you look at, right, Occidental, um, when Buffett was buying, it was only at about prices that it was around the time that COVID happened. Production for a lot of stuff has not gotten back to that level, yet demand has, you know, with stronger pricing and everything, and certainly your financial situation is better. So if you have that and you have any faith in what management is going to do in the future, then, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But it can change. That's the problem. It won't change fast. But a few years of this happened. What can change? The capital allocation or yeah. the price of oil? No, the, well, both. The capital allocation yeah. <laughs> will change the price of oil. Yeah. So, um, no, they, they will. Yeah. Uh, no, they'll do the, eventually they'll make the same uh, mistakes as before. Yeah. Um, well, how do you know they'll make a mistake? Because it's a cyclical industry. Okay. We talked a little bit about this. You know, it, this is my simplest way of under explaining a cyclical industry. I mean, the fact that an industry is cyclical by definition means they're making mistakes. Sure. Uh, uh, that's what causes cyclicality. Yeah. Cyclicality is that decisions that now you could say it's not their fault. They're making mistakes. It's impossible to predict something and they're trying to, to make a judgment about yeah. it. But if an industry is cyclical, it means that something that's happening now is out of line with what your previous behavior was. Now it could come from some shock like COVID, you know, out of nowhere, and that changes it. So you have too many movie theaters and no one wants to go to the movies. Obviously, the fact that movie theaters are empty is the same sort of result that you would get in a cyclical industry where you have huge operating losses, but it's just you couldn't foresee that, right? Yeah. In other things, it's, it's not. I mean, the who would want the price of oil to be so high? I mean, they probably want to produce... Oil companies? Well... I, th I think in the long run, oil company, I don't think high prices are good for oil companies if you were going for the very long term. I actually think they're bad. Um, they're certainly very bad for OPEC. Like for countries that depend on oil, sustained high oil prices are very, very bad. You, you want the correct oil price. They want to be like the Fed. They want that neutral rate. That's what they're looking for. The neutral rate. Okay. Yeah. No, because if, if they're too high for even a... That's why... If, if they could have kept oil prices lower and people supplied um, throughout the 2000s in a different way, they would not have faced, um, they probably would not have faced some of the sorts of things that you have with electrical vehicles catching on in some of the ways that they have. And they certainly, 
certainly an easier one to look at is going back to the um, oil crisis, uh, energy crisis now, like what, almost 50 years ago now, um, which definitely had a huge impact on a lot more conservation um, of energy stuff in the U.S. greatly reduced, changed the trajectory forever about how much energy per person that we use and what the growth is. And people became much more efficient on it. and can, and they will become more efficient if prices stay high for a long time. So like the overall need, the overall demand is just lower in the future if you had really high prices for a while. So if you could find that perfect price level, that's what they would want. Certainly if you're like, you know, Saudi Arabia or something, a country that does depend a lot on oil for a long time into the future, it sounds like a good idea to produce huge amounts of money that way. Also, it just it's not that helpful because it has the same problem that the companies have. The companies, what do you do with CapEx? Countries, what do you do? Do you spend cr- like crazy on your budget now? That why would why would you want your government's budget to suddenly go up by a huge amount, create a lot of inflation and stuff? I mean, because it's not sustained. It's not the kind of thing that you want. You want more sustainable uh, results that way. So I, I don't think that it. I don't think it's prices that anyone's sought to have. It's just that what happened with COVID, I think, is the main factor. Mm-hmm. Um, in that the they obviously couldn't expect it, so that's part of it. But the bigger part is they did not expect the recovery to be as fast as it was. Which is the same thing as when we're talking about the Fed. You know, they were, once it happened, they were surprised by it. But if they were surprised by it and it didn't change that much, it would have turned out that they would have been more correct than what happened, which is they're terribly surprised by it. And then, oh, the future's going to be totally different than the past. Which was true for a matter of months, but wasn't true indefinitely. You know. Did you like the book since you've referenced it a couple times in this podcast? I did like the book, yeah. Yeah, it was good. It gave insight into that time period, and uh, it's very timely. Usually you don't get a book this detailed about that stuff coming out that quickly, so that was very useful, yeah. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. Yeah, that was a good book, too. Um, uh, Buffett, that was a good book. Mentioned it. Buffett explicitly. and then Ted Weschler as well was listening to a podcast he did, which was so funny, Norbert Liu, Mm-hmm. of punch card capital actually tweeted it out i think it was the first mm-hmm. time he's ever tweeted and it was a podcast that he put out of ted so i thought that was great mm-hmm. um buffett said during the meeting that he's been buying activision shares yeah um uh, he now owns 9.5 percent of the company it's kind of funny i mean how many times has another manager either ted or todd started to buy the company <laughs> and then at least, yeah. Buffett comes in and buys a bunch because he likes it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Microsoft is buying Activision for $95 a share. The stock, as you could see on the screen, is currently at $77.84. Uh, it's a $68.7 billion acquisition. It's interesting. I mean, you haven't seen a, an ARB or a workout in Buffett's words uh, with this large of a spread i feel like in some time like such a well-known public company Mm -hmm. this size there's some justifiable i guess you could say reasons for it because Um, of the scandal that led up to it i think because it's microsoft buying it now microsoft of the sort of fang or what are we calling them you have to add microsoft (laughs) in there i don't know but people know what i'm talking about The, the fang stocks that include microsoft um is the least hated by the government. Yeah. And by certain political parties and things like that, they're, they're probably the, the 
the one that has the most neutral views in the sense that if you went through the fang stocks and listed which one do you hate the most and stuff, Microsoft would come in the middle. They're the most ignored. Yeah, I think that's true. Right? What would be happening if Facebook was trying to buy it? I would say Facebook is probably the most hated. It would not succeed in, in buying yeah. Activision. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, you know, that that's but that is part of it, is that there is definitely a, f- a fear of consolidation it just in that those companies are hated. So, and then Activision has on top of this, this scandal, right? So that also is a factor. And then that could cause uh, issues that way. Um, I mean, you know, personally, do I have problems with it from a regulatory perspective or something? Would I entertain any issues with it? No, not remotely. Most of these sorts of things and entertainment things don't present any sort of problems that way. And there's lots of other deals that we could think of that I have more of an issue with the fact I'd have more uh, serious questions about it in terms of uh, negative effects that it could have, right? Um, some regulators in other countries have somewhat different standards, and it would be easier for them to have a problem, like Europe, with this deal than it would in the U.S. In the U.S., it's very hard to I, – I would think it's very, very hard to argue um, – that the deal should be blocked on actual antitrust grounds um, that aren't more politically motivated and stuff like that uh, because of the standards that they apply to it. Is this an ARB you'd be interested in? Yeah. So it doesn't mean it's going to work out. It? Yeah. But I said it was before. But I mean, you said that this is one that you'd be happy to own if it doesn't work out. And those are typically the best workout situations. Yeah, I'm with I'm with Buffett on this one. I mean, it, I think Buffett would say, "Look, we could lose a lot of money on this. It might not work out." That's what the that's what this is when you do this merger arbitrage stuff like this. The thing that I, I mean, I don't know. You don't have an exact quote from him about it, right? Yeah, no, we don't have it. But so he said stuff that he usually kind of says, which is, you know, there's a chance that this could fall apart. We don't know how much it would be that we'd lose on that and everything. But he didn't exactly say like we don't know if something else might uh, something else might come along. Um, I think when we talked about this, I said it's in play and it's not a bad price. That's just, that's what I'm saying. When a company's in play and I think it's not a bad price for the business to take control of it, that's attracting me. Is it Microsoft that takes control? Is it someone else? Is it a, a financial buyer that comes in because Microsoft fails to be able to do it? Is it another company that takes it over because they now want to stop someone else from being able to get control of it? Um, we could put in Activision and QuickFS and, and, and take a look. But now interest rates have changed a bit. Okay. So, you know, um, you have are you logged in so you have the tenure? Yep. Uh, yeah, let's look at cash flows so we can get an idea there. Okay. So... The appeal of this is that generally we've been talking about cash flows from operations. Um, there's significant stock-based compensation recently, but it's usually not crazy. So you're talking about numbers that are, I don't know, 1.2 to 2 billion year after year after year with some much higher than that, right? So if we look at the overview, this is a company that has, let's see, um, the offer here is 95, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that is, um, yeah, so that that's about, let's see. Um, yeah, I mean, you don't have to put a lot of equity into this thing to buy it at that price. Even at that price, right? I mean, you can take out, we just said, 
maybe it's 1.2 billion a year, maybe it's 2.4 billion a year, unless things change, right? How much do you really need on top of that than to pay interest to, to carry this thing? Now, like I said, interest rates are changing and stuff, but, but if you really want this, this is not a difficult asset to um, buy that way. Um, it's, yeah, you know, obviously a company like Microsoft has the money, it's not even an issue. But I mean, there are other companies too that could be interested. It's, it's not a bad price uh, size that way. Strategically, I think it's a very, very good asset. And there's a ton of companies that would like to own it. A bunch of them might be blocked or get a lot of protests and things. I can think of a ton of them that would want it. So it's more of a situation where if it's not Microsoft, there's a lot of potential for somebody else to come in and make a higher bid for the company. Yeah. I don't, and if it's none of those, you would still be happy owning Activision. I don't know detailed background to the deal here. Uh, there, there's some proxy thing that came out of stuff and we have ideas about it. Um, I think Microsoft was interested in buying the company, but I think the only reason why Microsoft is being sold the company is because of the, the issues that they had around the CEO and just in general with the, the, um, basically Wall Street Journal series, kind of whatever you want to call it. The Wall Street Journal did extensive reporting on mm -hmm. it. Putting that aside, I don't think that you would have, uh, that they would sell out like this. So that's why I'm saying it's, I think it's in play that way. Um, and the problems that the company has, I, I don't think are unique. Um, right, Riot, uh, is that who I'm thinking of, Riot? Paid a fairly large fine. Um, so, you know, I think these are issues that lots of companies would have. Um, I don't know if Microsoft is a great fit for it and stuff and all that, but, you know, I mean, it, it's got to be somewhat concerning to, like, Sony if Microsoft buys it. Somewhat concerning to Nintendo if Microsoft buys it. Um, mainly concerning to Sony, though. But, yeah, I mean, it would be bad. I mean... Sony probably would have thought it would be a better fit with them in the directions that they want to go and stuff than Microsoft. But, and then, and then there, you know, there's just other companies that are large, more tech oriented, or originally were more tech oriented and stuff that might want to own things like this. So I, th I think it's a, you could lose money on it. I think it's a merger arbitrage thing. But my approach to merger arbitrage, which is done okay, is I'm not trying to outwit other people about the odds that a regulator approves or doesn't approve this, that person, whoever, uh, is as good as their word about this, that financing will come through on this or anything like that. My approach is there's an announced deal. Someone's serious about it, right? They want to do it. Is it a good price, like a price that other people would want to top if they have a way of topping it? you know, just the actual business and what mm -hmm. it produces. Um, I would not, like if they announced tomorrow Peloton is being acquired, <laughs> I don't know how to value that. Yeah, sure. Okay, if they, so so that's one extreme, right? If they announce Funko is being acquired, okay, not as extreme as Peloton, but a lot of people would say, okay, I'm getting in on that, on the chances of this happening. That's difficult compared to to Activision. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a better asset too. How many bigger opportunities are there to take over? Sure. How many bigger video game publishers are there? Yeah. Right. Most of the other ones that you can think of are highly integrated into like a hardware thing or are otherwise very difficult to, to buy. Um, 
you're not going to get a lot of other chances to buy something like this. The financial results are really predictable in the past, really cash flow generative. You know, there are, there are others. We can look at them. So take two, you know, um, and electronic arts are both, um, uh, TTWO. Is that it? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So I guess, you know, um, you could certainly acquire both of them. I mean, I don't know if you'd be allowed to and stuff, but, but actually, I mean, who knows about that part? This is something that's, it's got to be reviewed by a lot of different people who have certain views about this stuff. Video games are kind of a um, lightning rod issue, I guess, like culturally and, and all that. To me, these don't present very serious antitrust issues when we compare it to other sorts of industries in which these kinds of deals have been approved. Um, I mean, you're saying like, it's not like Amazon just succeeded in buying MGM. Okay. I didn't think the airline was a serious antitrust issue. If anything, it increases competition in the United States because you already, you already allowed the biggest airlines. However, I shouldn't say you allowed some of them got big. Yeah. I'm saying, I'm saying it makes it worse or like you'd be more concerned about it with airlines. If it's one of the major airlines wanted yeah. to merge with another one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's an issue if, if Sony and Microsoft want to merge or Sony and Nintendo or Microsoft and Nintendo. Those are issues. Yeah, no, that that's true. But uh, Microsoft doesn't... It, I don't see it as a huge issue. Um, that doesn't mean it won't be blocked. When's it supposed to close by? You know? Um, who knows when it'll ever yeah. close by. It has to be reviewed by so many different um, regulators that it will drag on forever. Um, but... What I was going to say is like Amazon actually succeeded in, in buying MGM, you know, and if you're worried about this sort of thing, uh, I would have thought that that would have been a bigger issue. Not that I have a problem with it. I actually think it's a plus for consumers and in the United States. Usually that, that should mean that you approve the deal. Now in some other countries, the fact that you could use this to crush your competitors, even though you would greatly benefit consumers might be more of a problem. But obviously Amazon buying MGM is a plus for, for consumers, gives them more access to things and all that. Uh, uh, probably a lot more free stuff too. Um, but it, it is more of a problem for, for competitors looking to like, in the long run, set up a fourth, fifth, sixth biggest streaming company or something like it. It makes that harder. So you could argue in the very long run, this might be worse for consumers because it means less of these will be viable and all mm -hmm. that. Um, but that's the kind of argument you'd have to make for that. I, I think it's an interesting asset. Um, it's the right size. It's has very um, predictable and strong uh, sorts of results that you would need to support debt. And that helps if a deal falls apart, if other people need to get involved and if, you know, whatever happens eventually, it always helps to be able to take on a lot of debt. It, it just sort of helps close a deal of whatever needs to be because sometimes people who are interested in it don't have enough money. It's always hard when, you know, you're, you're burning cash or something. Yeah, Microsoft, I mean, they'll just probably use cash, I imagine, to do it. 
Yeah, well, they'll certainly, I mean, use cash initially. Um, I don't know if they should keep that much cash on hand, but yeah. I mean, there's a tax issue and stuff with that, but they should they should probably um, offset it, you know, but I, I don't know that they will. They're not that aggressive on um, on things like debt use. Uh, but yeah, they have the money and they don't have a problem with mm-hmm. it. And so do several large tech companies of the size of Microsoft that might not mind buying this. Who could you realistically see be interested Everyone's interested. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that. Well, no, I shouldn't say everyone's interested. Like Apple? Some people. I, I don't. Apple doesn't ac- acquire things, really. I don't know what Apple's plan is. Apple's very like With all their company. cash and stuff or what? With their Apple TV and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know what, what they're up to. But I don't know that about a lot of these companies. Uh, Apple, Facebook, I mean, Meta, um, all of those. I don't know how... You know, if, if they have plans that are going to be successful, um, expanding into different things. Why do they want to be so much media companies? Um, Twitter. Mm-hmm. Elon's buying Twitter. We haven't talked about that on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Activision is, there are tech companies that would be interested in them, but there's also, uh, there's tech companies, there's financial buyers, and there's also um, entertainment mm-hmm. stuff that would be seriously interested um, I mean, it's not going to happen, but Netflix would love to be able to have a game business. It's very different from a movie business, but they know that that would be something that they'd be, they feel a lot better about their future and stuff if they already own something that, mm-hmm. that had that. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of these are like all, they're, they're global. You know, we're talking about some of these companies that are as big, you know, in other parts of the world um, that aren't even names that are as familiar to Americans that would be interested in something like this. But who other than Microsoft is willing to go through all the regulatory yeah, stuff? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, like say hypothetically, Facebook really wanted to own it or something. Even if they thought they could get it done, they're, they don't want to do anything that yeah. puts them under that kind of scrutiny and stuff. And go then back you to have Hill. specific issues here. Um, with just having lots of headlines and stuff. So, you know, I think that's the problem that you have. But I also think that means that it is legitimately in play. The sort of my idea behind it is when I think about this, I think, okay, what if we held an auction? Put aside all the regulatory things. And you could say, well, you can't put aside the regulatory things because what if they just block everyone from buying it? It could happen, you know, in any country that could happen. But it's kind of like saying, what if the country never lets me take my money out of it? What if mm-hmm. they take away my votes as a shareholder or whatever? You know, it, it could happen, but I don't know why it would, in any one situation, I don't know why this would be the one. But they could certainly block a deal. But if they do, then it keeps growing with someone, you know, in charge. Um, if you put it up for auction, who would be there? Say they all had to put in, you know, sealed bids. We don't have to know who they are. Who would show up at that auction and who would put in those bids and what would it sell for? I think at auction, it goes for more than it's trading at. You know, if you could promise that everyone in that room, it will be approved. Whoever's bid is the highest will get approved. I think there are a bunch of companies we've heard of show up to that auction. And I think they put in an offer that's higher than the offer, um, uh, than the current share price. And I'm not 100% sure that they don't put an offer that's higher than Microsoft. Um, In fact, I think that if they knew that micro, if, if it turns out that it's, 
easy enough for Microsoft to get the deal done, they may regret that they, some others may regret they didn't do it. But I think I bet that if we learn enough about this deal and what happened over time, why someone didn't bid on it is probably all the other issues around it. It wasn't price. I don't think they're going like to say regulatory. We can't do. Scrutiny, I don't think like someone. That. Yeah, I don't think someone said I can't do a hundred dollars a share. I think they said they listened to their lawyers and different strategists on this stuff and everything and said, here's what, how hard it's going to be. Here's how long it could drag on for. Here's what it, you know, it'll mean for us. Do we really want to be in the news all the time with this, with a very high percentage, maybe not a probability, but a, uh, maybe not a likelihood, but at least a very high possibility that all of it ends up falling apart anyway. And you don't get the deal closes um, as you wanted to just because it gets rejected in some places. Um, in terms of actually closing the deal, I would think that Microsoft can agree to a bunch of restrictions that aren't a big issue. Such I mean, as what? Th there'll be tons of different things they ask them to do, mm -hmm. not to take advantage of certain things within. And I think they'd be happy to do that. Usually, Microsoft I, sounds like they could absorb them pretty easily. Yeah. And usually you can work those things out. And then over time, they haven't been that effective as like an antitrust tool. So I don't know if some regulators are less likely to allow that, to allow it just to be that their promises that you make not to do certain things for a matter of a few years or whatever. Um, but if they are allowed to do that, I think Microsoft would be willing to make some pretty big concessions that way. So it, it helps diversify Microsoft's business. Um, I don't know if it's the best use of Microsoft's cash and stuff like that. Um, but I don't know what else they would do. Um, I think it's really hard for them to do acquisitions in the more in the areas that they're in. Well, if they get it for 68.7 billion, sounds like you think that would be a pretty good acquisition for Microsoft price wise. Yeah, well, like, let's try putting in like, uh, try into it to give an idea of the kinds of things that are like more in the category of things that I'm sure Microsoft's thought of. Should we buy it? Uh, you know, if, if we could ever buy something, whatever, you know, look how expensive that is. For people listening, it's a $115 billion market cap and trading 53 times earnings, 10.6 times sales. Yeah, 40 times free cash flow. What's the free cash flow on this thing? If we look at the cash flow statement, yeah. It's better recently, but we're looking Ton. at something that's a lot like Activision. Yeah. Right? Uh -huh. And what's the price on it? 30 we just times said on the, free cash flow, 40 times. You're paying, you know, in terms of before Microsoft made the offer, you're paying twice as much. But now, it's gross margins. It's amazing business. Amazing business. A great business. And Microsoft tried to create a business like this and Microsoft failed. Um, and Adobe's probably the same sort of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's there's just businesses that this happens with. But um, if you can't build something yourself, then you have to buy something if you're Microsoft. And the sorts of things that would fit really well and that would make a lot of sense and I'd be all for if it was the right price if it was a Microsoft shareholder are like 10 times sales and stuff like that. Um. Yeah, and uh, Activision's at seven. Mm -hmm. And that's the and look at the enterprise value thing too. Because, yeah, yeah. So and that's actually, you know, I mean, they're paying more. Microsoft's paying more the, because of what happened here. There it hasn't really disrupted the stock price all that much. The odds, the people just aren't very in favor of doing this. So I, I don't know. Anyway, I just it's worth. This may turn out very badly. People listening <laughs> to this. Um, however, you know, it's worth saying. I thought it was interesting. Buffett thinks it's interesting. That's kind of weird 
that you have this big spread on this really well-known company. And there haven't been a lot of cases where I've said, this looks like a good uh, deal. I would do, I mean, on this podcast, I don't know whatever else we said other than Cambria looks like, you know, it'll get done at this price or they'll have to offer a bit more, but it's cheap. Uh-huh. Right? When have we talked about? Hunter Douglas? Okay. Okay. So but yeah. That's it other than those I don't two. think that, I don't feel like there's a lot where we say this is not the right price for it. Lots yeah. of things get acquired and we don't talk about them and say, oh, this price is too low. Uh-huh. Um, he, he can't really buy much more than 10% of the company re- realistically. That's kind of how Berkshire operates. Usually they don't want to do more than that. So he's kind of said, I'm taking the biggest bet I can on Activision. Yeah. And I also five. find it interesting because of the connection with um bill gates microsoft uh, and yeah. with this story that happened that he would risk doing this i think he can't help himself so we could all be wrong on this you could lose a bunch of money following buffett into it and everything but obviously he thought this is the right thing to do yeah I, I already thought about it i was like if he makes a bunch of money you know people are already going to complain like oh bill gates is your best friend and he knew and blah 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 mm-hmm. it's also interesting that there's such a spread yeah um, but I guess some of the others have come down a bit. We looked at take t- right take two and electronic arts. Mm-hmm. Um, this will be an interesting one to follow on the podcast. Yeah, I mean the price we're at now after the Microsoft announcement yeah, is a price which was an average price or below average price for six months, uh, six months to a year or something. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of the middle range of what it was a year or so ago. Yeah, I mean you could tell it looks like it was probably this day. Early January from the volume. Yeah. So I got some questions from people when we're in Omaha, uh, more than one person actually, which is about, about Activision. Activision. Yeah. What were the questions? Just, you know, you've done this kind of thing before. Should I buy Activision and stuff like that? And what was your advice that you think it's interesting? We don't get I financial think advice. I think merger arbitrage isn't for everybody. I think it's the right thing to do is to buy it. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I think that you, it's not for everybody. I think it's for Buffett. You have to be willing to buy something, just like writing insurance, right? You have to be willing to buy something, to lose a lot of money on it, and to say, based on the things that I knew at the time and the possible outcomes, it was a good bet. That was the right bet. And I just have to keep repeating that 10, 20 times, finding these things and doing that. And if I do that, if if my you know expected value is positive on these things over and over again, then it will work out and that's just how you have to do it. It is not to think, uh, oh, I lost money on this. That's part of it. You lose money. That's, you know, that's how these things work. It's like writing insurance that way. Um, you can't do it on the expectation that you'll never lose money. And the spread is, look at that spread. Yeah. It could take a long time to, to have a positive result, you know, but, and the other thing is, you know, if, you know, Buffett in his partnership days and things, of course, also when doing something like this would not use money he was using for other things. So that is, in, in effect, he would be leveraging it up. So if he had a portfolio that was 100% invested, he would go to 110% um, by borrowing if he was going to do a merger arbitrage that was 10% of his portfolio. And I think that kind of thing can make sense if it's um, mostly separated from the markets. So that's the other thing. I think that most people are heavily invested in stuff that all moves with the markets. This shouldn't move with the market anymore. So, you know, a financial crisis, something will crash the market and will blow up a lot of mergers. But in general, and even this one is a little less likely for something like that to be a problem because financing is not an issue here. Um, I think that doing things that look like they should offer the kinds of returns you can get in stocks 
in a normal year historically that aren't tied to the market are also a smart thing to do. So you look at the spread here, we're saying it's 95 minus 78, and then you have to decide how much time there is before it closes, um, which we have no idea when it will close. Um, and then compare that to the kinds of returns you could get in stocks. Um, it just seems like, why would this be a worse in, uh, operation? than owning like an S&P 500 index right now. And if it's not worse, then doesn't this help diversify? Like yeah. this is the kind of diversification I believe in. We talk all the time about concentration stuff. Yeah. I don't believe in like owning 30 of the same kind of stock, but betting on a deal. So diversification amongst like a strategy, different sort of things It's not correlated. Like yeah. It's mm -hmm. not, you know, on something that's not correlated. Mm -hmm. It needs to be something that you have, uh, you know, an edge, they would say, but but a uh, that you expect to have a better outcome than would be the average thing you could do. So you don't want to ever make a you never want to diversify into something that actually is expected to lose you money, but it just provides diversification. That's no benefit. You want to find something that should have as positive an outcome expected as the other things that you could invest in, but add some diversification. And so I'm all for that, and I would be all for. Um, Owning a, uh, a merger arbitrage position in Activision. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, we do not have such a position. And we don't because that's not the strategy that we said we're going to do with um, clients and partners and stuff. So that is a possibly one of the reasons why sometimes there are spreads. Because it may be that other people looking at this would buy it but think I shouldn't because it's not part of my strategy. Whereas Buffett says... That doesn't matter. I can switch that. Mm -hmm. And people are interested in merger arbitrage type stuff, losing a lot of leverage, worried about marking the book every single day, having to sell this deal to uh, upstairs, um, may feel that this is a somewhat different situation than what they're usually used to. I, I just think for the average person listening to this, if you want to get involved in merger arbitrage stuff, it's very hard to... Um, do it on the that you're going to beat professionals on the probabilities that something will close and when it will close. I think what you can beat professionals on is what the thing is worth. Because in my experience, most of them don't care what it's worth. They just know who the regulators are, the calendar, the people involved. They study all of that kind of stuff. And they basically plug in a, a formula of what their expected return is over what period of time to get an IR sort of thing from it. And then they do a bunch of these. Um, and it helps the more it looks like other deals, actually. Um, and I find that just betting mainly on the fact that there's sometimes things are really overpriced and sometimes they're not overpriced. This one isn't overpriced. Like this is control of the asset. I think in a market for control, this is not a bad price for it. Um, I mean, we can look at Microsoft just as an example, right? To see what they look like. All right. $2 trillion. And market capitalization. Yeah. So they, these are pretty similar figures in terms of like, uh, I guess, EBITDA and free cash flow. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. That Microsoft it's and Activision close. are fairly similar. Um, and then, but of course, Microsoft's not using stock, right? They don't have to use stock. Um, Microsoft's done well the last 10 years. And its growth and stuff like that is matching Activision in most ways. Um, but the num one number that means a lot is look, Microsoft is a what two trillion dollar company. What are its key kind of businesses that it's in? Right, like what is it going to buy in operating systems? 
you know, what are the things that it's leader in? There's stuff with servers I don't understand enough and cloud stuff. And so there's probably big acquisitions thing you do there that I don't understand. But it's kind of like Berkshire. Like, what are they going to do? Yeah. They're just so large. There's only a select few things that they could do. Seems like one of the smarter things that Microsoft yeah. could do at this time if they're committed if to those. Through. What? If it gets through. It yeah. Just, yeah, it'd be great. The price as well. Yeah. Um, and if they're serious about about games, and I think they are, um, obviously they could have like abandoned it, um, but they've clearly chosen not to. It is a really big doubling down on it if they do this um, in terms of how involved they are and in what ways. So, but you know, also what are they now? 20 years they've been in the business? Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, the deal could fall apart and then you could be very upset that you lose money. But look, if you, this is the weird thing. If you lose as much, not as much money, but in percentage terms, as much in the S&P over the next rest of the year, you're not going to be mad at yourself because everyone's going to lose it with no. you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you're down 20, the 30% it, though, in the, F- the day. It's the speed of it that I think would scare most team. investors. Yeah. Can't keep dropping by 30% a day. No, that's true. Yeah. You mean that one minute it's at one price and the next Yeah, but minute. we've talked about it though. If this is a company that you would just be happy owning, if it doesn't go through, that's not a bad situation. It's not a bad downside. Yeah. So I guess my way of saying it is if we're looking at it objectively, I think objectively, I like it. But we have to look at it subjectively. Who are you and how do you feel about these things and owning them and doing this? And I would say most investors... Merger arbitrage is not right for you. But if we could separate that out, if we could separate out your ownership of it and just put it in a box that's owned by a computer, I think it it should be in that box, yeah. Anything else that uh, stood out to you from the meeting, takeaways? Um, Hmm. So read the transcripts. That's the advice. It yeah. seems like a lot of people, sort of the consensus afterwards was, was a little slow. It, it was, yeah. I, people, I, I, there was a lot of comments that from the people I spoke with. They're like, yeah, they uh, kind of showing their age. It was slow. They certainly didn't answer a lot. Like, they didn't get through a lot of questions and all that. Yeah. I don't know how much. I mean, it's nice when they get do a lot of questions. Um, you know, if this was an every year thing, I don't know if we'd feel as maybe it would be as people would ha- still have that reaction. I feel a little bit of it is the the last two years with COVID and stuff that this was like a return to that, and so maybe that played it up. Um, obviously, it's more time to see the difference of what they what they were like before. Um, I was still impressed reading the transcript and stuff with the. Um, uh, with the way that Buffett was thinking and stuff, I, I don't see a problem with that with his age. Um, no matter what, and he'll admit it, you know, you're a lot less capable at that age. He can't do, doesn't have the same memory, can't do the same math things and stuff. That's true for for me versus what I could do uh, 15 years ago or something. It's certainly true for him uh, at not over 90 something. But you make up for it in other ways. And I think he's so seems to me to be perfectly... Um, logical sorts of stuff that he's doing so you know i i I was probably more positive than than some of the other people Mm -hmm. were talking to that way yeah what about munger's comments on china he seemed a little bit more 
humble in his Did answer. He? I thought okay. so. I mean, he said, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of investors that are worried about that. As opposed to just brushing it off of, well, I just think it's a, a great investment or there's a lot of opportunities. He basically said, the problem is there's great businesses in the United States and it's hard to buy them at cheap prices. Mm -hmm. So he went to China and that uh, there was a lot of pushback by investors that are scared to invest in. So he's like acknowledging the sell-off and everything and what has happened. And I think he did say that a couple days ago from when he said this. Okay. A couple days ago, they're kind of turning down the tension I guess you could say. You mean the Chinese government? Yeah, uh -huh. because of everything that has happened. I don't know whether that's true or not, or if that's a cop-out, but any thoughts on Chinese his? economic results have been concerning, you know, recently. So like I don't- Like with the shutdown or what? I don't think it's shutdown driven. I, I think there's other stuff happening Do you think it's there. politically move uh, driven? I don't think it's political. I think it's um, uh, too, building in too much assets, uh, long duration assets and stuff. I think it's deflation. I think it's it's what you see when you have a big credit expansion and then anything that slows that growth at all, you know? So I just mean, um, we'll see what happens. But if there are changes in, in Chinese policy and stuff, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's as much a result of that as anything else. If they're seeing, as long as you have steady, high economic growth, you could probably implement a lot of policies you want, whether they're popular with investors around the world or they're popular with the people in your home country, whatever. As long as you're delivering that, then that's easy. Once you're not, then that becomes the main focus, right? You see that here in the United States, right? Like, I'm sure there's lots of things that Biden would like to do, Democrats would like to do. They have slight majorities and things. They might not have them in the future. This is the time to do all that stuff. But then inflation got to a point that's, okay, we can't do some of those things. It just, it, it overtakes your ability to handle other sorts of things at the same time because it just becomes a major focus. Um, whereas when the economy is doing well, you can, people are kind of let you do what you want in terms of your policies and they're much more um, acceptable to everybody. Uh, so I think that might have more to do with it. I don't know things about how China works, but I would guess that like, I don't think they care how investors in the rest of the world think about them, but they might care if they would like their to have their money in China and, and definitely for other people not to take their money out of China. Um, and so that's more like just the economic growth situation. Um, it's not amazing compared to the rest of the, it's not amazing compared to America right now, you know? So like on a relative basis, it's significantly slowed versus what it was uh, versus the U.S. and stuff not that many years ago. So, you know, that that's just, it, it makes it harder to um, mm, ignore, you know, what's happening uh, in terms of if there's a lack of um, faith, you know, in your market or whatever. The, the China one is weird to me, though, because, like, people have been investing there for a long time you know, from all, all these different countries, they've been very happy to be in the country, investing in them. This has been the system that's in place, right, for a long time. So I don't get, like, the speed with which they've been selling out of it and everything. That does surprise me. Um, I don't know. Do you, 
you would know better than me about that. Like, are, I mean, that's part of it. Alibaba's listed <laughs> on the New York Stock Exchange, right? So, uh, there's probably just much more in investment by Americans generally in it than I'm aware of. I just want to think that it's the stock that, like, do, would people buy it the same way they buy Facebook and, and Apple and everything? They, I mean, they have no awareness of what this company does, mm -hmm. its services. There's anything. always been people that are kind of skeptical even about like the accounting. It's always kind of been a black box. I just would have saw their steadier hands owning it, you know, so and it's turned hands. out to be the case. Paper hands. Is that <laughs> yeah. what you're saying? <laughs> um, you know, like there's certain things that I just like people get involved. Um, I feel like a lot of people followed Munger okay. into the trade. We do know that's true. And herd mentality creates reversion to the, you know, I mean, reversion to the mean. I mean, you get these huge movements. I wonder how much a lot of people own Alibaba, and I feel like they don't even have an investment thesis to begin with. Yeah, I guess I just don't know who owns it. I would have thought that it was like this kind of thing in Alibaba or Tencent or whatever is like owned a lot by like hedge funds and things like that and not by the general investing public in the US, Europe, places like that. But, you know, it's listed, it's been listed for a while. Um, I just think that because it's a huge company and they have no, um, it, everything it does has no relevance to your life. I mean, oh, I they might as saying. well be on the moon. Like, why is it so popular? Right, because it, you can't use it. I mean, you wouldn't use it. You know, it would be, um, doesn't that strike you as odd that way? I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I think it's because of the growth numbers. It's a tech company, the valuation. You know, like, say it's an oil company. Say it's PetroChina, right? Okay, well, I know what an oil company is. I can yeah, look at lots of like oil It's not like Coca-Cola, where you, you see right, the product say it's a every single day. Bottler. Yeah. Say someone was trying to tell me it's a Coca-Cola bottle in China, you know. Um, I don't know. There's just something about it that I would have expected that the people who owned it were more, more like Munger, you know, I, and they can't be if what we're seeing. And so the, you're saying you're surprised by the paper hands that have been involved when it's been more sophisticated investors involved in the stock. I've always been worried about the like your average and person they can do and stuff, but I always thought that the people who are invested there wouldn't be that scared by some rhetoric or something from yeah. China mm -hmm. about uh, from from the government about changing things um, because they're. I always figured they're kind of big investors in China, you know, like that they're global. So like Jack Ma, read the book. I mean, he spars with uh, the government all the time. Like they understand it. Yeah, so so like Munger, someone who who clearly understands it and um, is comfortable with it, and and you know said that uh, I forget when he said it, but he said basically like uh, this Daily Journal. Some Daily Journal. Some people aren't comfortable, comfortable with it with Russia. Okay. Okay. Well, I know he's talking about China. You know, no, what it, so maybe it wasn't Daily Journal, but at, at one of these things he said, um, you know, but who am I to say because I feel that way about Russia, you know, that I would just want to invest you know, in it. And, uh, and yet I'm okay with China, you know, and some other ones say you, they've got the cheapest companies and the highest quality in Russia. You should buy them, you know? Um, so each person has to get comfortable with, with the various countries that way. Um, that's the only thing that's, it hasn't surprised you the speed of it. The this is a very large, fall? these are very large 
very oh, large sure. companies. Yeah. So, right. So like, was this, what was this? Like, uh, I mean, this was the size of the, some of the bigger stocks that we were just looking at. I mean, it, was it half the size of Microsoft at its peak? Yeah, it's massive. Something like that. Um, Six hundred billion. Okay, so it's just very large to have that kind of decline, that speed of decline in something that's not having anything showing up in the financial results that are radically different from what was happening before. It just isn't. I mean, we talked about it. I think there there are some issues in the financial results. Talk about what the they look declining like. gross margins. Yeah. So, it is, but those are long term. Like, there's more competition. I, I would describe the long term trend here as fast growth with more competition almost every quarter, every year. That's what I'm seeing. Um, but that's what you were buying into already. So that's not going to surprise you. you well, know? we did have the Chinese government go after the education companies that were listed that basically oh, yeah. are zeros. So I think that scared a lot of American investors in the name. There was a lot of people that followed Munger. Now 13Fs have come out where people don't know if he got a margin call. Did he convert his shares from... New York Stock Exchange to buy the Hong Kong shares. No one really understands what's going on from oh. that perspective. And I think that creates a lot of uncertainty for, for our, a lot of people because they didn't mm -hmm. have their own thesis going into it. I get that for our listener base, right? But the amounts of money involved here are way beyond value investors. No, that's true. Yeah. You know? And people on Twitter. <laughs> so, I yeah. mean... It, well, maybe well, there you go. Like a, do I want to be out of China? That's what I was saying. Yeah. So maybe yeah. you get like these funds, these mutual funds, these pension funds that systemically sold out because of all these other things that were going on. And it's out of their mandate now. And one thing that could have, and it's more recent, this had already declined a bunch by then. If we can we see the chart again? So um yeah, can we go to year to date? All right. Um you may want like yeah. One, yeah. So so it already declined a very large amount before this. But there's also the issue that Russia invaded Ukraine. So Russia invades Ukraine. This is whether this was a surprise to some people or not. Maybe they thought it was a 50-50 possibility, whatever. What does that have to do with China? It doesn't have a lot to do with it, except when you start to see the sanctions on Russia and what it does to the economy and that you yeah. literally can't trade their stocks or touch their currency. And then when that happens, it occurs to you that, oh, like you can be a completely on the opposite side of, you know, an, an iron curtain, basically, that you can't. We talked about that with things in Russia and you were like, you know, some people were asking, like, so what does that mean for a company, a U.S. company or a Western company of any kind that has an asset in Russia? And I was saying it means it's worthless and you have to basically hand over the keys to a Russian because there's there's not really a good way otherwise to do it. Um, who else would you be able to work out an arrangement with that they, they would buy it? Maybe you can find, get some market from someone who's from a country that's sort of vaguely neutral. That's not, you're not too upset with them. Russia's not, too, you know, can an Indian firm buy from a British firm an asset in Russia? You know, maybe. Um, although they're going to write nasty things about you and all the papers and all those countries. You know, everyone will be criticized somewhere for that. Um so once that happens, then like it, there does become more of an awareness that um, these countries, right? Like Russia, the government doesn't care what happens to it, these companies. It doesn't have, care what happens to the shareholders. And there may be some people when, when something like, before something like that happens who believe, no, they wouldn't 
that yes, you know, do you trust the Russian government? No, I don't trust the Russian government. Do you think that they're rational? They might not think they're rational, whatever, but their self-interest is not to let these things happen to their oil companies and stuff like that. And that often, right, is the argument with um, with the big giant Chinese companies is like they recognize that it, the people always say that the Chinese government recognizes in their interest to have these um, sorts of companies doing well. Uh, one, economically, it's a benefit, I guess. But two, um, people need all this stuff, and they're certainly not going to want Western companies to provide it. So it has to be provided by Chinese companies. Then these are kind of national champions of China as a result and all that. So those are all pluses. Um, and so they won't do anything crazy um, that would harm them. And that might be true. I'm, you know, I don't know how much this affects Alibaba. Um I'm more skeptical. I've always been more skeptical about that. I think we did a podcast where I talked about that. Um, compared to other countries, I think that China is more um, aware of risks in their like political system to with um, uh, speech and cultural uh, like um, societal trends and things like that. Of social engineering that they need significant control over the population from a perspective of what they think and talk about and stuff like that, much more so than any other countries that people compare them to in terms of emerging markets. Um, as a result, although they definitely want certain stuff economically to happen, if that clashes at all with um, their ability to have sufficient control over their population from a party perspective, um, then I think that they don't care and that they'll, they'll do what has to be done. Um, I don't think that that should cause huge problems for most of these companies though i mean mostly what we're talking about is i mean you as outside shareholders should probably be able to do okay in them we're more talking about serious problems for insiders at some of these things i mm -hmm. mean i would think that's how they fix it you're not the ones making decisions about how to run the company so they don't need to get rid of you if they have a problem um they basically need to shift things around among insiders um and so if anything You'd think that billionaires in China who are actively involved in companies are more the people that would be worried about something happening than outside investors in the rest of the world. Because um, why do they care about that? You know, um, I mean, what happened with Russia, why you get harmed as a foreign shareholder is because, you know, you're basically an enemy of, of that country now. As long as that doesn't happen with China, then why would they want to harm outside investors? Um, but uh, it's just, yeah, I mean, I was surprised by that. Mm -hmm. So you can see something in that chart. I don't know what that is exactly, right? But what you see happening. It's kind of like right around. When, yeah. Uh, the I, whole situation. Something, out. and you see the volume and everything. Then maybe there's other stuff going on. But I did think there, I know it sounds silly, right? What, did, what do the two have to do with them? But just talking to people that it was like, we talk about China stuff and what the risks are. And there's some real risks, right? But they're not any risk that should appear tomorrow in it. Um, they're just like the risks of being in a country like that versus being in whatever country that, that your home country is from investing in these things. And so when they're not, when none of that is in the headlines and everything, it just seems uh, easier not to think about it. I, I don't know exactly, but there's some like um, thinking that I feel like from people that like the um i don't know 
what do you think? Um, do you feel like people were shocked by the war in Ukraine? Yeah, I would say so. But I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I don't want to make this about Russia and Ukraine, but I think people were shocked. But I think Rus- Russia was also sending sort of signals along the way that this is their red line. They don't want to cross it. The whole thing with Ukraine uh, joining NATO, they put their troops across the border and then it happened. So I think people were surprised, but I don't think people should have been as surprised. So I just feel like investors seem to have been really shocked by like that an invasion of one country by another could be why oil prices are going up, why stocks are going down, why whatever. Just like um, the idea that there are wars in places happens all the time. They're aware of those things. But the idea of this happening the way that like the Suez crisis happened or the um, or uh, the per- even the first Persian Gulf War. Maybe people are more shocked though because it's been... Ex- I mean, I don't want to say exaggerated because it's everything's justified, but because of social media, people are seeing it firsthand. Yeah. And it's probably the first time that really ever people have been able just to pull right. up their phone Otherwise, and be like you on saw the historical stuff. Exactly. When you were seeing yeah. it, it was historical already. And just yeah. to confirm when I say exaggerate, like that's justified. I'm not saying mm-hmm. people's reactions are exaggerated. I'm just saying like the gravity of it, people could just pull up their phone and see it minute by minute. So, like, historically what happens if we look at events worldwide uh, with financial market stuff is that almost universally when something happens and you're surprised by it and you happen to be investing in other countries and stuff, the people from that country just pull their money back to them. Yes. It isn't even about what country country you're investing in, what the risks are and whatever. You just bring it back home when that happens. And it's a knee-jerk thing and you see it immediately and it would affect all sorts of markets around the world. That may be part of what affects emerging markets in some cases. You know, if you look at the results that they've had, there's plenty of like legitimate economic reasons uh, with rising interest rates and rising oil prices and things like that that might be negative for some of them. But there's also just that many emerging markets bring in a lot of investment from developed markets. that are are just investors in them and that they may pull things back the moment that there's any sort of fear, any sort of crisis. And, you know, maybe that's um, what happened, you know, here. Um, It is a just remarkable amount of, uh, not just volatility, it's it's a pretty severe downtrend for many months. Um, That's just very large to me for a company like this in this environment. I mean, if you said like, there's not, you're going to be in perfectly normal economic times. I mean, how would you envision this happening? If you bought this stock, it'd be down by two thirds from its peak, especially during a time that was like peak, um, you know, e-commerce and stuff like that over the past couple of years. I know they do a bunch of stuff. And it's but not, it wasn't absurdly overvalued relative to peers or something when it started that decline. No, you know, if we look at the quick FS one, we can see, um, yeah. So you go back to like 2020. Yeah. So like at its peak versus like, if we compare it to like Amazon, yes, it was priced higher than, than Amazon is now on like price to sales and things like that at its peak. But, um, it was also growing much faster and, you know, let's be honest. Um, but it isn't, we're not talking about one of these things that is, you know, 10 times sales and all of that. It, you know, it was pretty expensive, you know, and obviously Munger wasn't buying at that price. But 
it was there were as there are many other stocks that were very expensive too so it wasn't out of line with that sort of thing and now it's not expensive really um but you still wouldn't buy it it's just i'm probably not gonna buy a chinese stock and i'm definitely not gonna buy a stock that i just don't understand um i can't understand it right just from the perspective i'm not living in china i don't know the importance that this has day to day and all that i mean how i mean like i said like if you were living on the moon how would you evaluate netflix you know like like you can't watch it you can't see how other people use it you can't um or you know you use twitter imagine a twitter service a twitter-like service in another country that you've never seen don't have any idea how people use it in that country they don't have twitter you can have people tell you it's the twitter of country x Mm-hmm. and you can believe it or not it's usually the buzzword right you know you can it's believe it or, of, but. yeah yeah you can believe it or not but i don't know what to do with that um and i've invested in some companies in other countries where i didn't you know um there's a little bit of that you know i've invested in i, I bought stock in companies in a country where i hadn't like literally tasted the food at that restaurant or whatever but i saw pictures I saw menus. I read compared reviews. it to things. I read reviews. I a lot of uh, things went into that, you know, and um, and I figure I could do the same thing in another country, but I don't know. It, it's very hard for me to evaluate that. It's almost like saying to someone who's, you know, say it was the 1990s or something, trying to explain to them what it would be like with um, e-commerce and all that. Now, in 2022, yeah. you know. It just, it wouldn't, uh-huh. it's, it's or point. like people before COVID and then when COVID is happening, you know, yeah. um, how different some of the things are like, you know, with the, with the social distancing stuff, right? Like if you explain what Zoom is or, or those things before that, you kind of be like, well, why did they need these things? Why do they need all this delivery stuff to them? Why did they, you know, it's different society that works differently. I just don't have any insights into it. Mm-hmm. But Munger invests through a fund that has a lot more of a connection to China right so yeah and so maybe there's a lot of that that goes into it he's very interested in china obviously munger um and was one of the questions we get asked about some of the most uh but it's you know uh i'm just very unlikely to invest in china mm-hmm. never been there you know if, if i was in china maybe i would think differently uh about some of these things but you know um I'm not sure. I mean, I know some people who were in China for quite a long time uh, and used the, the internet there and stuff um, with different permissions and things because they were, they were foreign and they were a guest. Their, their, their organization was a guest there and they were doing certain things that were allowed for Westerners that weren't as allowed for Chinese citizens. Um, and it was very different the experience that they had versus the experience that others had and all that. So there's a lot of, you know, how much are they involved in services and stuff like a lot of these companies, more so others than Alibaba, um, that I don't really understand what's happening there because um, things work so differently, you know, the the way that they're controlled there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, who knows? But, you know, you see it in every country that there's a lot of desire to control a lot of things on the Internet because of how important platforms that they can be. I mean, there's lots of people who probably like to control Twitter mm-hmm. and it doesn't even make any money. 
So, or he doesn't make money now officially. Yeah, he's gonna have to bring it public again. Um, you mean or he could sell? He could just sell Tesla stock, and or he could do that. Fund the losses in yeah. Twitter. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the amount of debt and the interest payments on it, he's gonna need to cut a bunch of GNA. When they went public, I think they had like seven hundred employees, mm-hmm. and now I have seven thousand, something crazy, and a lot of people talk about it they're like what's that going towards the product really hasn't changed there hasn't been much innovation um so i mean on a bunch of different measures i've you know i mean like the price has never been acceptable to me and on the lower levels of it, the sgna and how the company's run and everything it's not acceptable we've talked about but if we though. go up yeah if we go up the income statement I, I, a lot of the numbers that they're hitting are are not bad, and you. It seems like something that's very promising in terms of the possibility of monetizing it. With you know that that this is something that's getting higher and higher gross profit constantly, while seeming to not do a very good job mm-hmm. of monetizing its actual reach. Yeah. So yeah, look at operating profit and look at gross profit. Mm-hmm. So everything above uh, operating line tells you about. The business itself and everything below, including the operating line, tells you about the people running it. And you could see that right now. I mean, look at the even the revenue growth. Yeah. You know, so it's even not just the that you have an audience and stuff, but you're not monetizing them all, at all. You're getting quite good numbers in terms of revenue Ten growth. Ten-year Kager, 47%. Yeah. And you're wondering, how do you spend all that? Because when you look at the service, it does look like something that should scale dramatically that yeah. way mm-hmm. that there should be a break-even point and once you get past that you should be able to make a lot of money it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would have to require so much more yeah and compared to like a facebook meta i mean look mm-hmm. at the operating margins on meta big difference yeah yeah uh it's gonna be interesting to see what they it does make with it. more in a month in profit in profit than, in profit than Twitter may uh, not quite last year they did uh, than than Twitter does in revenue, but it's not quite because actually Twitter's up quite a bit recently, but that's not a bad uh, figure. So they actually made more on their bottom line in a month than Twitter makes in a year on top line. Elon's going to be the interim CEO when he acquires it, so that'll be Tesla, SpaceX, the Boring Company, and Twitter <laughs> CEO. Yeah, it's not been a successful public company. Successful media outlet, you know, great success. That's what we always talk about. Except as a public company. I'm like, one day we'll look at this. I would always say this. I think you even said on the pod. I'm like, I think one day we'll look back and be like, of course, this was just a a bargain in plain, plain sight. I use a service. We use a service. A lot of people like the service. I know it's, you know, sort of small sample size to fit to it and stuff like that. But it's a great service. And the presidents communicate on there and world leaders and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, why isn't that uh, a valuable platform? But they just needed the right person to run it. And I mean, even Jack has tweeted how Jack Dorsey, the former yeah. CEO and founder, how the problem with Twitter has always been the board. And I'm like, weren't you the founder of this company i mean i get that you get on that treadmill and you raise capital and all these different things happen and it's outside of your control but we'll see elon could probably do it but anyone can it'll be his i mean the thing is too right is like you think about it um no matter what happens he's gonna look like the bad guy 
So, I mean, both the extreme left and the extreme right are going to hate him and the people running Twitter. You're never making everybody happy. It's very interesting because it's the opposite of Activision, right? Yeah. It, it might make sense or not, but it's a deal that basically probably wants to do regardless of whether it um, financially makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So, like, we'll see, but... He has a lot of money in Tesla. Um, Twitter could be changed quite a bit in a way that could make it more comparable in value to Tesla. You know, Tesla could come down in value. Twitter could go up in value um, because maybe there's more opportunity to, to grow actual profit a lot and stuff. So maybe it could matter. But for the most part, you're saying, okay, the financial incentives aren't really there, you know, to, to do a deal that makes a lot of sense. And um, you already have a huge focus on something else. So why are you doing this? Oh, you're doing this for because of a belief that you have, you know, mm-hmm. that this is important to do this. So it's very different from the kind of self-interest things we we're talking about with Activision, where we're assessing on the basis of does it make sense, you know, as a capitalist um, here, you're having something that is. But, you know, that's the tradition in media. That's definitely the tradition of media. You know, you got your voting stock to make sure that a family keeps control of this stuff. There's so much done in media that is we've got to control this newspaper. And it, if we don't make the best profits or whatever, that doesn't matter because we like um, being such an important part of the community, having so much influence that way and all of that. And that's what you see in all of these, you know, media companies and in, in the Internet stuff. They're still they're still media companies. They're still the same thing as owning the local newspaper or whatever. You can see that with Twitter and there'll be a lot of interest by people. In, uh, in owning them, controlling them, regulating them, whatever. Um, even if it's not just about money to do those things because of how important it mm-hmm. is. So, yeah. I, I, it's very strange um, to do that, but it's interesting. It's a big news story. Um, I, I just find it fascinating as the company and, and whether you know whether it would be worth a lot of money. At I wonder point. if on some level Elon thinks it's a way to get money out of tesla into a vehicle that it people looks could a understand. lot more attractive financial i mean tesla's making money and twitter isn't and everything but if you yeah it's recycling those gains into something that there's a lot of optionality there to create value. Mm-hmm. It's a great platform. It's just right. Yeah, so you it's can go like, there what do we just decide? Two and a half, three times the gross profit at Tesla as a Twitter, and you're at thirty times the price. Or I don't. Let's see what the price is. Hold on. Uh, not quite, but you're at. Are you ten times more in terms of price to gross profit at Tesla than at Twitter? Maybe. And then the operating margins at Twitter could potentially be much higher than at mm-hmm. Tesla. Obviously, um, the idea is just well, maybe your revenue could never be that high, but you, who knows what the revenue could be? What were the estimates when Facebook went public and stuff about what their revenue could be one day? What was it you know when Google bought YouTube? What were the estimates of how big that could be? It gets a lot of audience. Yeah. Um, whether they have a way of monetizing, I don't know. Um, yeah, we'll see. It's it's. I, I'm, it's not 100% impossible that Twitter and Tesla couldn't one day be worth similar amounts because of how different the businesses are. Meaning Tesla comes back down? Presumably. <laughs> Twitter they, goes up? Well, they both have to, yeah, presumably they meet both the have middle. to do it. They both, both have to meet in the middle. But what, I mean, think, uh, okay, so if we went back to, 
I mean, what what are bigger social media things than Twitter? There are a few. Facebook. Okay. But I mean, can you come up Truth with more than four? Social? Just kidding. You know, like um, Twitter's a little weird because I guess it's more news oriented in the sense that like official people break news on it yeah. and stuff like that. So it probably gets, uh, in terms of relative to the time spent on it, it might be exaggerated how important it is, right? Because the stuff happens there, you know, um, to a greater extent. It's how people want to announce. I mean, you had a president who that was the main method of communication. Um, and now presumably they'll have a CEO of their company who that's his main method of communication too. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not crazy. I, I don't think he's buying it for that reason though, you know? But Do you think it's more of like a moral thing? There's so many people pro- rolling their eyes right now. Probably. I don't know his, I don't have a good feel for his personality. I don't know why anyone's so surprised. I mean, Basil's owns Washington Post. Um, I forget her name, but Jobs, Steve Jobs' ex-wife owns The Atlantic. I mean, this is not like some sort of new thing. I think it's just Twitter's more polarizing. It's a huge deal. It's Elon. This is an enormous purchase, though. Huge. Yeah, what did Bezos buy the Washington Post for? Like a couple hundred million? I mean... That was charity work. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is... um, Yeah, it's huge because it's basically one service is all that we're talking about here and a price that's incredible. I mean, this is the size of some entire media conglomerates are about this size. And this is one... It's it's basically one little app that you have, you know? Um, So it's just like world famous that way, Mm -hmm. the reach of it. No, I I don't think that if you're going to do something for purely financial reasons, I don't think that this would be the one to do. Um... But I th- do think that it's m- the it's kind of more interesting. I, I, I wouldn't buy it. Um, but if I was going to buy it, I'd want to control it. That's for sure. Um, because I think all the problems, uh, not all the problems, but the problems that you see in its past are not a problems of a product that doesn't ha- have good reception in the public or even necessarily terrible monetization and stuff. It's, it's, there's got to be issues with the organization and how it's run and all of that. Um. Yeah, I mean, but it's this, we're not talking about some like failed product or something here. No, this is, and so there's probably a big potential here. It's just not the kind of thing that we do, but um, it, it is a strange one because it's something that seems to have a lot of upside, uh, profit wise, and yet has been around for so long. You know, because it's grown so much and still managed not to make money. While being so successful. I mean, could you imagine if you went back 10 years ago and told people, you know, how big Twitter would be in terms of like, it'll, you know, people probably would have been saying, okay, this is still going to be around in 10 years. You know, is this going to be the next MySpace or whatever? No, it'll be around. It'll be huge. It'll be, you know, here's how many people will be using it for all this stuff. They're going to be watching the president tweeting all the time on it. It's going to be breaking news of that stuff. Um, Here's how much the... Even if it was just telling you how much the revenue was. Look at the increase in the diluted shares. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's that's how that kind of company sort of works. I mean, it has to. Stock based comp. Yeah. Yeah. It's so here's what's interesting about this. Yeah. 
what we're looking at here is stock-based comp at, at Twitter, a company that's not, you know, you know what the numbers are. You're seeing them here or have seen them. Um, and not consistently generating, you know, um, free cash flow really at all. Um, allegedly it has free cash flow, but it's all goes into stock comp. Um, if you could put in Activision, because that's what we just looked at, I can compare the two to give people an idea here. Um, cash flow. Look, yeah, cash flow. Yeah. So if you yeah, look, there's one year where Activision remotely rivaled um, Twitter. For stock-based comp. Mm-hmm. In the other years, we're talking about Twitter sometimes being, what, three to six times higher stock-based comp? Hmm. I don't know. It's it's hard to fathom. While they're reporting earnings at times that are as high as like Twitter's, uh, not Peak. quite as high as Twitter's revenue, but Twitter's yeah. gross, their reported profits are like, their free cash flow is practically, you know, at levels that aren't that far from what gross profits at Twitter are. Um, <laughs> now, I guess Twitter could say, you know, they grew faster than Activision. Like revenue and stuff grew faster and everything. They grew a lot faster. So if that's what, stock-based compensation stuff is all about is that growth phase company type thing. And I guess they did it. I don't know. It's, it is hard to imagine that way. And yet at the end of the day, right, they're still worth pretty comparable in value. I mean, they're worth more than the other video game publishers we just looked at. Another thesis to show that Activision is undervalued. They could be (laughs) justify a higher price. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess you raised a lot of money when you went public. It's kind of the way to explain it. So if you're like, well, we'll we'll give away 1% of the company no matter what, as long as you raise a lot of money up front and you're associated with that, then you make a lot of money off of it at something like this, you know, as an insider. Um, You get issued a lot of stock. Um, If the stock had to go up over time, then you wouldn't make any money. But you don't have to do that because you you still get stock. Um, hmm. It'll be interesting to follow. And he's going to have to take it public again very soon. People think that within the next couple of years, he'll take it public again. Yeah, and look, if you this is something that if it was turned around at all in terms of the financial results, you could see it going getting a very uh, high price probably. Mm-hmm. I could imagine that. Um, yeah, I mean, say you tripled revenue and then you got a higher multiple on that because you were growing so fast off of that. Um then you know you would have a um, uh, you could easily see it going for um, uh, you know between one hundred and two hundred billion dollars or something, which isn't insane. You know no. it's actually small compared to some not small, but it's not large compared to some other things um, in terms of the audience and all of that. I don't know because it seems like a very unique service. You use it and. Uh, I guess the thing is how not to upset people with a monetization mm-hmm. of it so that you can keep using it. Um, seems like something that like, like a data thing or something that they could help figure out some more information about how people actually use it and how you could put ads into that. But it's one of these weird things because we're talking on podcasts right now. Podcasting has a huge audience and makes like almost nothing from advertising. Mm-hmm. Huge audience. Out of all the minutes that people listen to podcasting, it's tremendous compared to some other media things. And yet, the amount that it brings in is barely anything. Like, there are a few podcasts, you know, that have sponsors and things like that. Those podcasters do very well. But once you get outside the top 100 shows or whatever, podcasters aren't really making money from advertising. Um, 
and yet they have audiences that are larger than on a, I mean they could basically take their podcast put it up on YouTube and make more money mm-hmm. from the Google ads <laughs> from the totally automated sort of thing yeah. but the reason why is because that is a way to monetize at scale yeah right so like you can do a big ad buy through YouTube through Google but you can't do that through podcasts which are unaffiliated with anyone else so that's kind of they've created a marketplace there so maybe you know obviously maybe twitter can do something like that that makes more sense from an advertising perspective same thing um it'll it will i guess be interesting to see although unfortunately it's one of these typical things where if it goes well it's not going to benefit public shareholders and it's the thing that drives me crazy that way where it's like a lot of things they'll do are probably things that they could have done while being a public company. Mm-hmm. Right. That's one that always annoys me where you could have recapitalized the company yourself while you were public. You could have made these changes. And when then you read these books, but why haven't they though? I mean, this the is not and everything. uncommon knowledge. I mean, a lot of people have been quite frankly, like bitching about everything that we're talking about right now for years. So then you have that issue of, the board owns not much of the company mm. and they're the ones holding management accountable. Again, gone are the days where Andrew Carnegie owned a third of the company and would fire the CEO if things weren't going well. Is that trend positive for shareholders? Well, that's sort of what's happening now. I mean, yeah, eventually. Are doing sure. Yeah. yeah. But, but that's the way that it has but to happen. The trend happen. in the industry has become much more passive. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of times you do need an outside buyer or private, you know, which is often a private equity thing. Um, at least in this case, presumably the, they'll change everybody there. And, you know, in private equity, they often keep some people in the same seats and then compensate them differently. And suddenly they are able to make all these tough decisions that they couldn't make when they were a public company. Um, yeah, it. I guess, you know, your shareholder base just doesn't demand much of you that way. What's the turnover that there have been historically in, in um that probably is influenced by this recent buying by recent seventeen hundred percent. Yeah. So basically that would say that the average share turns over seventeen times a year, <laughs> so more than once a month. I I have no like Twitter has like n- no long term shareholder base, right? It just hasn't probably ever. like Jack Dorsey. <laughs> okay it's a, um i just it feels to me always like something that people are trading never something that i've heard of people owning for a longer term and obviously of course people might not admit that they've owned it for a longer term because it hasn't done well for a long time um but yeah you you need some people who have like uh who are going to do the things that that elon musk mm-hmm. uh will do presumably um that is a benefit you get i, I mean that was another thing that stood out really big to me in the Berkshire meeting, how tough Buffett and Munger were on index funds when they've, that is usually something they've gone out of their way to be very, very positive on. And I think they've changed. Is it because they're critiquing Buffett? I think, yes. That was his first, that was his opener when he came out and they all started clapping for him. He's like, where are the index funds or whatever? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because of the, I think they separating the role. They're definitely causing a problem for his annual meeting. They're definitely causing a problem with the connection between shareholders and an owner management. Um, and I think that we're seeing some of the issues that that might come up 
when you have people who are passively involved. I, what bothers him probably is that they will institute sort of rules across their entire organization of how they're going to vote, right? So they'll be like, we're in favor of voting for disclosures about greenhouse gas emissions or whatever, not carbon emissions. Um, or we're in favor of this uh, um, diversity thing, right? Or, and then they're not on this other thing. They won't think through the decision, the, the, the votes at all on a one-off, uh, stock by stock basis. So they'll just come up with these policies across everything that way. Um, they're not, they're kind of not great shareholders to have along with you. Um, we wouldn't love to be invested in things that are mainly owned by like index funds and stuff, because obviously if you look, the proposals that they want have nothing to do with the business and certainly aren't going to improve the business. Yeah. Um, they're not going to it's much more about other people's perception of the business. They're not going to vote for outside activists coming in and changing things they're just going to vote along with management on lots of other things and um then they just are fine with the business being on autopilot i mean really what you need at a company like twitter right is someone to say among other things but let's start with the most obvious you can't issue yourself all this stock <laughs> right you can't do that yeah and no one did that yeah, I mean, that. this is it's more than seven X in 10 years. For what purpose? I mean, I've seen companies issue stock and it's, tell it I issue a bunch of stock. I don't have anything against issuing a lot of stock to merge with a lot of things. We've invested in companies that used a lot of stock to do mergers, whatever. How is this company different from the company it was uh, to start out with? How's the service different? It's not. And they're also paying the people salaries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if they won't work for just salaries, um, then maybe find other people. Mm -hmm. If you need stock, if you need stock to be motivated to to accomplish what they've done, then. But uh, what have they done? They haven't done anything. That's the whole gripe about it. Where they they had corn in San Francisco, right? Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everyone else is getting it. Yeah. So if we're more successful than everyone else, now you're not successful on a financial basis, mm -hmm. but we're the biggest, we're the best, we're the they're not not, not the biggest or the best, but sound like Trump. They're one of the top. How can you say if you're talking about a bank somewhere or something, we're a top five, whatever. Put in accounting firm, law firm, whatever. We're a top whatever thing. A movie studio, right? Mm -hmm. We're one of the big five, six, four, whatever it is in your industry. Then we have to be compensated like them. Everyone else is getting to go public and have all these, uh, make all this money off of these shares that they get issued and everything. So, so it's, should we? It, I mean, bottom line, mismanaged. Great product, mismanaged company. I, it's got to go beyond mismanagement. I don't even know what it is. If it's a cultural thing. Breach of fiduciary duties. I don't know these companies. You know, I, I read the books about these things and stuff, and I go on that. I feel like maybe Facebook had a founder who wanted to make a lot of money. Like, was a businessman, right? And saw that as a way of making success. As, by the way, did, like, Microsoft. And Jack, when he came out to basically congratulate Elon, mm -hmm. he said the goal has always been to connect the world's consciousness. So there you go. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like Bill Gates wouldn't say that. Yeah. Well. But I, there's probably some quote of Gates saying something, uh, you know, yeah, warm and fuzzy or something, but no, I, I don't get no, a lot I know of what it. You're saying. Yeah. So I just, if you're going to have someone running your company 
or and a board and all of those sorts of things, um, then being then then you know um, you could see that from a fairly early stage. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this is a strange thing to say because he's being heavily criticized now, the head of Activision. But you know the history of my investment in Activision is in meaningful part because of uh, what management was saying, uh, you know, going back 20 years, that they, more than any other video game publisher at the time, were saying things that sounded like capital allocation, um, about running a company and how you made decisions about things that sounded most business-like. And some other companies at that time, and this has changed somewhat because there are different people running them now, it sounded like they were interested in... Um, Basically being a Hollywood type company. Mm-hmm. We're making a lot of entertainment. We're going to be as big as movies and things. People are going to care as much about that. And um, they're really buying into that, I felt. Um, and that's fine. But they, you know, they seemed more oriented towards shareholders that way and what they were going to do. And that was a major factor in that. Although it would have been fine in most video game companies of a certain size and success at that level. If you had bought any of them and held it, you would have done okay. But sometimes there are companies that seem less interested in making money for outside shareholders. And I've never gotten a feeling that that Twitter's terribly interested in doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, Well... And a huge part of that probably is that they weren't like threatened with being wiped out at any point because of the history of when the company was around and what capital markets were like and stuff. Right. So you're able to rate, you know, like I don't think Amazon would be the company it is today if it wasn't for the bust, if they just raised all that money and and there had never been a dot com bust. uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure that they would have had the same level of efficiency in the future when it was really useful to have it to drive the growth of their business and all that. Um, it, yeah, you, your learned behavior sometimes can be not that good when you have a, a pretty continual boom in what you're in. And people have been very forgiving about Twitter for a long time. Um, I mean, we're looking at numbers right here that's like, so you increase things like gross profits about like 15 times and you barely generate more. I mean, you don't actually, when we adjust for certain factors, you haven't generated anything, but you basically, after achieving that in a matter of a decade, you're still not able to reach levels of profitability that, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to fathom mm-hmm. what's happened there because your business is so similar to what it was before. That's the part that's baffling. This is, this is not something that's pivoting constantly to doing no. different things that way. So, uh, it, it, I, 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 it'll, I'm sure most people will be interested in seeing like what happens with, uh, Elon Musk and all that. But to me, it's kind of the more interesting story will be like when someone writes How'd the we get book here? about, the history yeah. of Twitter as like a public company and everything and how you can grow this much for this long and have not really created value. And the crazy thing is too, if this was a private business, 
I mean, would it have even lasted? Would the business even look like this? It wouldn't well, need it wouldn't outside look, capital. It wouldn't look like this because it's a private business and that people wouldn't be giving you half a billion dollars of their shares to hand it to yeah. you. You can only take that from a group that consists mostly of outsiders. Yeah. One partner isn't going to say, I'm going to reallocate to you. You have to really earn that if a partner is saying, I'll take my share down from 33% to 30% so that the new partners can own more of the business yeah. and stuff. That that happens in some partnerships and stuff, but it, you really have to earn it. Um, that obviously happens all the time in public companies as long as you're taking from mostly outsiders. You know, you're taking from insiders too, but they're getting uh, shares. <laughs> and so on a net basis, they're coming out okay. They're not also giving it out to the outsiders. Yeah, I think it'll be run very differently, and it will yeah. be run very differently, which we'll see. Um, but I'm most interested in like the history of it as a public company and what happened there, because um, you know it's just one of those sort of things that you worried about in boom years that this kind of thing would happen, and there wouldn't be discipline put on companies that way. We've talked about Uber and, and, and Lyft and all of those sorts of things to go for so long. That way is is hard to imagine, and what it means for the economy and everything, like to compete with companies that are in that kind of situation. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on today's podcast. Um, if you are interested in QuickFS, if you're watching the screen right now and you do want to sign up, you can go to quickfs.net. Tell them that you came from Focus Compounding in the checkout. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, uh, reach out to me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. I thank you so much for tuning in. Hit the subscribe button and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.